This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. and continual on-air roles that I ever had on a commercial radio station was going to court every day in the trial of John Gotti Jr. and covering all four of his criminal trials. I mean, it's amazing to think that one person can be put on trial four times for essentially the same crimes, but that's a story for another show. And I would go to court each day, sit in court and make notes on what I saw, and then I would talk about it the next day on the radio. That is how I first came to be known by many people in the WABC audience and on some other stations that I've been on over the years. And it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing it. However, that meant a great deal of inconvenience at times. It means I would ha- meant I would have to come in super early to the radio station and then leave, take the train, and make it to court and essentially be in court all day for eight hours, often not having slept at all, um, type up my notes, and then be ready to go, along with all my other duties, by 3.30 a.m. the next morning. It, it was very it was very challenging. I would have much preferred to sit in the comfort of my home and just watch the proceeding on television or just kind of sit in the comfort of my home or my office and watch the proceeding on a laptop computer screen carrying it live. However, I did not do that. Matt Blaze, do you have any idea why I did not do that? It took too much time. No, it would take less time if I were to watch at home on television. So you said with the laptop at the time that oh, it took okay. much, well, too much time? Right, okay. But why wouldn't I just watch it on television? Well, because you get more credibility that you were actually there. You could see more. You can see That's what's going point. on. That's a fair point. Uh, but that is absolutely wrong. I would have happily have sacrificed whatever credibility I had for the ability to sit in my bathrobe with my feet up, w- taking those same notes on what was happening in court, watching them on television. Kenneth, do you have any guesses as to why I was not able to do that? Hey, look, we saw the Murdoch trial. A lot of people were watching live coverage of that Murdoch trial from South Carolina, coast to coast, shore to shore. Any idea why I couldn't do that with with these four trials that I just alluded to? Perhaps the station would not allow you to do so. No, they would have loved it. They wouldn't have had to pay me to go. That is, once again, absolutely wrong. The reason that I couldn't do it is because in federal court then, in 2005, and today, in 2023, federal courtrooms do not allow cameras in the courtroom. They do not, well, I should say, they don't allow the proceedings to be broadcast. Because when I went and covered the El Chapo trial, there were so many people there for every single day of that trial 
that there had to be an overflow room set up in the courtroom across from the main courtroom. And I'm just talking about press. So they set up a whole separate courtroom for people to watch a screen. So they had these cameras set up, but you can't go home and watch them. You can't watch it on the Internet. You had to go to the courtroom. Think of how foolish that is. There's cameras set up with audio, and it could easily be broadcast to the rest of the world. And I could tell you that El Chapo trial that I covered, there were people there from all around the world that were covering it. And a lot of us would have preferred to just watch it on television. Why are we talking about this now? I have railed for years that whether it's the district court, the court, the uh, circuit court, or yes, all the way up to the Supreme Court, I firmly believe that every one of these federal trials ought to be broadcast on television if someone wants to film it, either live or at least let people who are accredited journalists go in there with a video camera and record it. We saw the a whole network was built around this, Court TV, about just showing nothing but court cases. You saw the Johnny Depp trial. You saw the Murdoch trial. You saw, most recently, the Gwyneth Paltrow trial. People could watch them. They didn't have to make it all the way to Utah. I think that's where the Paltrow trial was. Or the Carolinas for the Murdoch trial. They got to sit and watch it at home or wherever they wanted to watch it and come to their own conclusions. Why are we talking about this now? Well, as outrageous as it is that you can't do this in the federal court system, do you know where else you can't do this? Ah, uh, by now so many of you have guessed it. New York State, that's right. New York State does not allow cameras in the courtroom as a matter of right. It's totally at the discretion of the judge. Do you know how many other states that's the case? We we didn't have any luck with Kenneth and Matt Blaze answering. Zero point <laughs> zero. That is absolutely right. New York is the only state in the union, all other 49 states, you're able to, they take the attitude that this is a public proceeding and you should be able to go in there and broadcast that public proceeding in the courtroom. Because chances are not everybody can fit into the six rows that are available in the courtroom. Now, the reason this is significant, the reason I'm bringing this up, the reason I think this is so important that I'm actually starting the show with this is because we are seeing something. Last week we saw something historic, and tomorrow it's going to be made official. We know President Trump is facing a slew of criminal investigations. There's federal investigations of the January 6th insurrection. There's mishandling of documents. There's local uh, election tampering in Georgia. But New York is the first jurisdiction to indict Trump on felony charges. Now, think about that. That means Donald Trump is the first former president in history ever to be indicted. Now, I happen to think, I'm not a lawyer, but based on what some of the lawyers were saying on Friday, I actually think there's a decent chance that uh, this case might be thrown out before it even gets to trial. And we don't know what these charges are, so let's let's put a pin in that and see what, what happens when they're unsealed. So the basic facts are known. 
Trump's accused of committing and covering up campaign finance fraud by paying $130,000 in hush money to an adult film star in an attempt to hide an extramarital affair. This is the first ever felony indictment of a former president. The public interest in this regard requires total and complete transparency from beginning to end. And that means that President Trump's trial absolutely must be televised, in my opinion. Uh, today, after the show, I'm going I'm looking after my mom's dog, so I'm going to walk him. And right after that, before I go to bed, I will be writing a letter to the judge in this case, as well as the, uh, pr- the DA's office and the defense attorney, urging them to allow cameras in the courtroom. It's really the judge's decision at this point. But, you know, if the defense attorney and the prosecutor don't object, then I think the judge is probably more likely to do it. New York is the only state in the entire nation that bars cameras in the courtroom. But New York's highest court has ruled that the state legislature can allow or even require cameras in the courtroom. And if the legislature acts and Governor Hochul can sign this into law before the trial begins, we will be able to see this Trial. I don't care whether you think Trump is guilty, whether you think Trump is not guilty, or whether um, you actually have an open mind. Wouldn't that be nice? This is incredibly newsworthy. This is more than newsworthy. It's historic. And at most, 40, 50 people are going to be able to huddle into that courtroom. Why shouldn't everyone in America be able to watch this trial on television? Now, you might say, okay, what's the big deal? Why do they need to have cameras there? Why can't they just have reporters that write about it and then write articles? I will, I'll tell you why. And you're welcome to comment as you see fit. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'll tell you what. When I was covering, and I didn't just cover those four Gotti trials. I've covered many federal criminal trials over the years. And one of the strangest things I would be sitting in the courtroom and I would make notes on all the things that I thought were important that that happened that day. And then I would read the papers the next day and it didn't matter liberal outlets, conservative outlets, whatever. And I thought initially, well, wait a minute, I must have missed all the important stuff because none of the papers are taking are uh, taking note of the things that I thought were important. And then I realized they're not interested for the most part, in covering the things that are important. They're interested in sensationalism. They're interested in the things that has no outcome on the bearing of the case whatsoever. They're interested in a flashy quote. They're interested in something that is um, sexy, not anything that has to do with guilt or not guilt. And that's why I've covered some trials where the reading public that only knows about these cases from the New York Post, New York Daily News, New York Times, they're shocked that the verdict goes this way. But when I'm in the courtroom seeing what happens, I'm not shocked because that was the right decision in some cases. So I don't think we should allow reporters, whether they're good reporters, bad reporters, liberal reporters, conservative reporters, I don't think we should allow reporters to craft the narrative about this. And uh, I know a number of media outlets have already asked the judge to allow cameras for this, even if the state legislature doesn't act. But in my view, the news value and the historical value of this is too great. 
there ought to be cameras in the courtroom to televise this from gavel to gavel. And if there's no cameras, the public is going to have to rely entirely on the media for coverage, leaving room for right-wing or left-wing lies and disinformation to flourish. We've already seen what some people can do by cherry-picking certain coverage to fit whatever editorial narrative they want to they want to express. You saw that with the case of Nicholas Sandman in Washington, D.C. You saw that with the footage that Tucker Carlson aired of January 6th. We've seen um, people flat-out lie about events that we've seen. Now, imagine if the public hadn't already seen what really happened for themselves. And that's precisely what we're at risk of here. So I'll tell you, a fellow that I very rarely agree with, State Senator Brad Hoyleman Siegel, held a press conference yesterday announcing that he's sponsoring a bill that would change the current rules by allowing the press to record trials on video cameras and for the courts to stream the proceedings. Under the proposal, judges would still have the authority to ban the recording of trials but it would flip the existing default that only allows audiovisual recordings when a judge gives special permission. So if there's a sensitive witness or let's say there's um, somebody that might be the victim of a crime or someone whose testimony puts them at risk for further retribution, then maybe the judge will say, OK, we're not going to show this on TV. I'm not going to allow cameras. But for the most part, their legislation would allow gavel to gavel coverage. And I must say, I was surprised at some of the reaction to this from conservatives on Twitter. I would have assumed that conservatives would want to watch this trial if it goes to trial, as much as I do, like we will be able to do the Georgia case, if that ever goes to trial. But one person commented, people dying in the streets from drugs and gun violence, and this is Hoyleman's priority. Let's stop focusing on, and then it's an emoji for uh, a bowel movement, and focus on the people. Another person, uh, I assume a conservative, Hoyleman wants the trial to be a literal show on national television, coast to coast. But if conservatives call it a show trial, methinks Hoyleman will be outraged. Funny how that works. Another person writes, Proof that progressive Democrats in New York are certainly no better than Trump and perhaps even have an IQ of 25. Here's Senator Hoyleman announcing his effort to pass a special bill just to humiliate a defendant. Sets a whole new bar of law of low and governmental abuse. I completely disagree. I don't think this is about humiliating a defendant. I think this is about the public's right to know. The public especially those of us here in New York, the taxpayers pay for that courtroom. We pay that judge's salary. We pay that prosecutor's salary. And this has the potential to be something that is written about in history books for literally hundreds of years. You know, there was something that they called the trial of the century way back in um, around 1916. And it was a libel trial in upstate New York. And it was uh, Theodore Roosevelt suing a newspaper editor. And you read the transcripts of this trial, and Dan Abrams wrote a terrific book about it. But you read about the—it was 1913, not 1916. 
Roosevelt v. knew it. It's just an amazing situation. The newspapers are full of colorful language. Theodore Roosevelt himself testifies in this trial, knowing that some of his remarks are likely to prejudice the jurors of German descent against him. And he goes on a full-out, basically anti-German rant on the, te- on the stand. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What I wouldn't give to be able to watch a recording of that trial. But unfortunately, the technology didn't exist to allow that trial to be televised or even recorded. Now, it does. And if it doesn't happen, the only reason will be because New York is the only state not to mandate this. So I'm going to be writing to the judge, and I'm curious what your opinion of this is. Do you think we should have a right to see this trial gavel to gavel, gavel to gavel, live and televised? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if not, why not? I don't want to, I don't want to hear... Oh, yeah, well, they shouldn't show it. I want to hear an explanation of why New York should be the one state in this country where we can't see this trial of the first former president in history ever indicted. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Stephanie in Queens. Very special name to me because that's my mother's name. Oh, thank you. And everybody stole the John Katsimisidis for Apple Radio. Beg your pardon? Thank you for taking... Thank I said... Thank you in Greek to John Katsimatis. Ah, very nice. Okay, radio. great. My Greek is not anyway, the best. Anyway, I worked for Donald Trump while he had the Trump shuttle. I did his accounting. My friend Lori, who lives around the corner, we live very close to the airport, took his call to Trump Tower. I think what has been done to him is diabolical, and I think absolutely I agree with you. There should be transparency in this trial if it goes to trial, but I don't think it will. Because I'm a legal assistant, he's a victim of elder abuse at, 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 at least. What about his human rights? Well, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens, right? I mean, uh, I'm imagining uh, that for the arraignment tomorrow that we'll we'll see some cameras. And I, I, I look, you might be right. I, I guess we'll know. We'll have a better idea tomorrow once we see what the charges are. And thanks for the call, Stephanie. And thanks for your nice words about the, the network. But... Um, as far as I'm concerned, this is an open and shut case. This case ought to be on television. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Wide open lines if you want to comment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Hey, coming up in a little bit, we're uh, in two hours precisely. We are going to have a discussion about the Zodiac serial killer. You remember the Zodiac serial killer? Well, there is some... Research that indicates we know who that killer is. And we're going to be joined by Dr. Mark Hewitt, one of the greatest uh, researchers on this trial, coming up in a couple hours. We've got commendations coming up. We've got a lot to get to. 
going to be a fun morning and an interesting morning. At least I hope it will be. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, just uh, join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook or just go to uh, Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Now, I'm going to get back to your calls in a moment. I will tell you one of the things that was very frustrating to us over the weekend is, you know, my cat, Bathsheba, our cat. Uh, Bathsheba, we have three cats, and one of them, Bathsheba, suffers from both high blood pressure and cancer. The specific variety of cancer that she has escapes me at the moment, but it's uh, it's very treatable, and she is on oral chemotherapy, and she's out of medication come Friday. So on Friday, the medication is supposed to arrive by, I, I think, around 7 p.m. It's not there yet. And now my wife has run out, and she's concerned that the cat missed a dose that morning, Friday morning. And my wife is is concerned, and she is calling the company that we order these drugs from like crazy. And finally, she gets someone on the phone. And this was a lengthy process of getting someone on the phone. And they apologized. They said, okay, we're going to have somebody come over right now. And my wife, and you don't have to do this. This is part of the service they deliver. And my wife has had pretty good things to say about this this particular service. So I don't want to mention them and embarrass them. But my wife always tips the people because she's so impressed with the service. So she says to me while she's giving our son a bath, she says, there's $5, there's $5 in my pocketbook. Grab $5 and give it to the person that delivers Bathsheba's drugs. So uh, the person brings the drugs and I see it on the ring camera that we have. And she just drops the drugs on our front porch in a bit of bag, you know, nothing wrong with it. And so I run after her. I, I say, hey! And I see her car door is closed. Her window is up. She's probably got the radio on. She's not hearing me, and she's not looking in my direction. So now I run out there barefoot in a bathrobe uh, Friday night, and I knock on the window. 
And uh, I, I said, uh, and she was frightened. She didn't expect to see me. And then I, I handed the $5. I say, thank you. And she said, oh, great. And she was super nice. She said, that's great. Have a blessed weekend. Great. She leaves. I bring this bag of drugs in. I put our son to bed. And my wife, as she's feeding the cats, because you have to take this particular medication with food, she is looking at the drugs that are in the bag. She says, there's only one drug here. I said, well, what is there supposed to be? She said, there's supposed to be two. Look, it says on the bag right here, it says on the label right here, attached to the bag, two drugs. There's only one. And she is not at all happy about this. But she says, okay, let me give Bathsheba the one drug that we have, which is labeled to be the proper chemotherapy that she's supposed to be taking. And let me call them and see if they can do something about the other one. So she takes out this medication. And I believe this is in capsule form, this one, not in liquid form. She takes out the medication and she looks at it. The pill bottle is labeled as the correct drug. But she opens the pills and she sees that it's the wrong drug. They put the wrong pills in the pill bottle. It's, it says right on the capsule that it's some other drug. So if this was me, I would have given that cat that drug because I don't look at anything. I, when I get a restaurant bill, when I get a bar bill, I couldn't tell you what's on it. I just look at the total. Boom, boom, boom. Added my 20 to 30% gratuity. Bah, 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 bah. And other people, the smart thing, do what my wife does. She scrutinizes every line. If I get a prescription from a pharmacy or delivered from a pharmacy, presumably, and it says the right drug on the pill bottle, I do whatever it says on that pill bottle. Take two, bop, 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 with food, without food, whatever. I would never think to look at the actual drug. Turns out they brought us the wrong drug. And so my wife was apoplectic. She was flipping out, absolutely flipping out. She's calling them, and now she can't get uh, get somebody on the phone. And finally she gets it. And this was a multi-hour-long process that I'm sure was exactly how she wanted to spend her Friday night. And finally she gets someone on the phone, and the earliest they can bring back the medication is Tuesday between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. And she's in bed by 10 o'clock. She says, all right, go ahead, but... If I'm not out here, if I'm not up, I guess you have to leave it on the porch, which we're not crazy about doing, leaving it out there all night, at least until I come home. And uh, the lesson here is twofold. One, my wife said to me after we're, we're debriefing over this whole situation, she said, the, the person at fault here really is me, is I shouldn't have waited in so long until um, ordering a refill. I should have seen once it was near the end that's when I should have ordered the refill. So this way, if there was a delay, we wouldn't be uh, we wouldn't be in this position now. And then uh, the lesson I think for everybody, humans and pet owners, is make sure you look at these drugs. I'll tell you, this was a wake up call to me. Seeing how careless this one particular drug company is, or pharmaceutical company, is in turn, and this is a reputable company, a big company. Seeing how reckless they were in putting the wrong drugs labeled in a bottle that's supposed to be something else, I am looking at every pill I ever take for the rest of my life. And I hope everybody does that. 
because you don't know what they're giving you. You got to always check. That, so, that's really bad. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, again, I don't know what that other drug would have done if it would have been harmful or or what. But, but it could have been. And, yeah, and especially absolutely. for people, maybe two medications that you're taking, one doesn't mix with the other, or one can kill you because you might be allergic to it. And you're right. I don't look at the pill, the actual pills. I right. mean, I know whatever medication I take, I know what they look like normally. And I've taken it long enough that if it was a different pill, which has happened, I've gotten the same medication but in different pill form. And Uh I look at the pill and I go, wait, this doesn't look like the normal pill that I get. And then I I go, oh, this this is just a different brand or or whatever, something like that. But usually, no, I don't actually look at the individual pill, especially with the cat medication. If you're not the one administering that medication all the time, how would you possibly know or even think that the medication that it says is on, on the bottle is not the actual medication in the bottle. No, you know I, exactly. I would have had uh, absolutely no idea. So be careful. That was our uh, adventures in um, in pet ownership this weekend. And my mom is uh, on vacation uh, this week, so I am tasked with uh, taking care of her dog, Watson. So I'm going to go there after the show and then when I wake up in the afternoon and then in the evening before I leave uh, for, for work. It is nice to spend time with Watson a little bit, take him for a walk and Try, if it's nice weather uh, today, I'll bring him to the park and maybe we'll play a little bit. But uh, I do feel bad that he's essentially by himself for most of the day. He's getting on in years now. He's uh, probably about 14, 13 or 14. Still such a good dog, uh, but it's great to spend time with him. I feel bad that he's spending a lot of that time alone, though. But I'm glad my mom is uh, is going away. She certainly has earned a vacation. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, last thing I'll mention, and then we'll get you to your calls, Fred, Robert, Jeff, Frank, Larry, Tom. Um, last thing I'll mention as it relates to animals. This came up when um, my sister-in-law and co-brother-in-law were, were over the other day. Last weekend... I went to the grocery store and I bought some, uh, you know, like a cheese platter. And there's all sorts of different types of cheese. And I don't know what made me think of this, but I'm looking at all the great sheep's milk cheeses that there are out there. You got um, Pecorino Toscano. You got uh, certain types of Manchego. You've got a lot of different types of feta, and I absolutely love all of them. Pecorino Romano, all sheep's milk, sheep's milk, sheep's milk. Uh, Roquefort, which is basically blue cheese, sheep's milk. And I don't know what got me thinking about this, but I started thinking to myself, wait a minute. Carmine, my son, drinks cow's milk from a bottle, drinks whole cow's milk. Just about every day. Loves it. In fact, sometimes when he's having a temper tantrum, that's the one thing that'll kind of calm him down. He'll reach out for this bottle with both hands, grab it, and that'll calm him down a little bit. That'll chill him out. And then I've seen people drink goat's milk. And I've seen goat's milk for sale in grocery stores. But I thought about it. And I've never seen sheep's milk. For sale in grocery stores. Never seen it. And so I look look this up online. Because if you think about it, 
Goat's milk makes some great cheeses. I love a lot, of, so many different chevre, a lot of different varieties of uh, goat's milk cheese. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, why would you be able to eat or drink cow's milk, drink goat's milk, drink human milk, but why wouldn't you be able to drink sheep's milk? So I look it up. Sure enough, um, sheep's milk is also used in a bunch of various yogurts. And if you look, it is drank all over the place in other countries. And there are people in America that sell sheep's milk to drink. There's this one company I just saw. It says sheep's milk is better for you than cow or goat milk. There's all sorts of nutritional benefits for sheep milk. I have never tried it, though. So I'm thinking of buying uh, some of this stuff just to try. I don't necessarily want to get a whole bottle because if I don't like it, then what are we going to do with it? I mean, maybe Carmine will drink some. But they say it has a lot of nutritional value. It says it's got calcium. It's got minerals like zinc. It's got vitamins like the B complex. So I may um, I may try. And, and it's got a lot of protein. They say, like I said, at least the, the prom- proponents of sheep's milk Say it's better for you than goat milk or cow's milk. Just to give you an idea, vitamin A, sheep's milk has 83 grams, cow's milk has 52. Vitamin um, vitamin D, sheep's milk has 0.18 grams, goat's milk has 0.12, cow's milk has 0.03. Vitamin E, it's got more than uh, goat milk and cow's milk. Vitamin C, more than goat's milk and cow's milk. Thiamine, riboflavin. Vitamin B6. So what I'd really love to know, and you don't have to call in. You can email me on this if you want. If sheep's milk makes all these delicious cheeses and it's nutritionally superior to goat's milk and cow's milk, why don't grocery stores have it? I was in the grocery store again the other day and in the dairy section. I'm looking around. They have goat's milk. They have cow's milk. They have soy milk, almond milk, cashew milk. All these other milks that aren't really milks. Why can't you get sheep's milk? Um, and I'm curious if you've ever tried this. Have you ever tried sheep's milk and what your impression of it was? Maybe it's so gross that no one would ever want to drink it. Maybe that's the case. But I want to try it. Unless a whole bunch of people tell me it's just horrible. So if you want to email me, you can uh, on that subject, Morano. Mm-hmm. At WABCRadio.com, or you can um, you can call in at 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on uh, really any subject you like. It's the uh, program dedicated to the free and open exchange of our ideas. And we only have one guest today, and that's coming up in our third hour. So we'll have some time to chew the fat on a wide variety of issues. Let me begin with Alona in Westchester. Hello, Alona. You know something? Your wife is so smart. She is so smart. Except for her choice in husbands. No. 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 You're a great guy. (laughs) She's lucky. You know something? As a nurse, this is such a serious thing that she caught. You know, I'm telling you, that's why CVS started writing on their little bottles that the medicine you get, what color it is, what it looks like because of, of mistakes. But. Uh, you got to take it to a new level. You've got to find out what happened. I didn't hear all of it, but 
what they're missing a medicine and one of them wasn't the right medicine. Right. Is that what happened? That's right. So this, okay. we were supposed to get two packages of medication. They only brought one and it's labeled as the correct chemotherapy medication, but it's the wrong pill. And now our cat's going to miss, I think, three or four doses of chemotherapy. This is horrible. I'm telling you. And then, you know what I've caught also? Um, expirations. You get medicine that have already expired. This is very serious. Is there any way you can go pick up the medicine or is it? Um, a, can, a, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I, I think there, that's a good question. I'm sure she'll look into that. I'm sure she'll she's listening in podcast form now. So uh, I, you just gave her a reminder to uh, if there is a way to pick it up, uh, I certainly will be happy to. Hey, Alona, as far as you're aware, yeah. how common mm-hmm. is this kind of a thing? Med errors? Well, specifically in drugs. I mean, we, we, I mean, books have been written and uh, houses have been paid for and practices have been shut down because of doctor error. But how common is a pharmaceutical error like this? You know something? It can happen. You know, for instance, let me tell you this. There is a drugstore. Um, it was about a couple of months ago, and, and I was just driving up, picking up some antibiotic. And I saw all these meds that they had done. I said, how many meds for clients have you done in a day? And I think they said, maybe I missed I thought it was like 7,000. You know how how much there's a a room for error with that? Oh, yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. And um, again, shame on us for waiting till the supply was so low before we ordered a refill. But I'm glad uh, that my wife did have the wherewithal to check because if I if I was administering this medicine, I would have given the wrong medicine. The thank you alone. Appreciate the call. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Fred is in New Jersey. Hello, Fred. Frank, uh, the girl who dropped off the medicine, did she ring your doorbell? Uh, yeah, and she rang the doorbell. She left a bag uh, that uh, had right. that had drugs in it, yeah. and then she went back to yeah, her yeah, car. Yeah, because you didn't say that, and then I'm picturing you running out after her if she didn't ring the doorbell. No, she rang the bell. She rang the bell. Uh, then she like, deserved the tip. Like Amazon people do. She rang the bell. Uh, she left it. We have a little bench right outside, right. and it was raining. It was. I mean, it was misting. Yeah, but it was I know. That, that's drizzle. why I said if she didn't ring the bell, I was going to say she didn't deserve the tip, but she deserved it. Yeah, oh, I, I agree. Thank you, Fred. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I, I don't think she was responsible for the wrong medicine. If she was, then she certainly did not deserve the tip. 800-848-9222. Robert's in Pearl River, a.k.a. the Irish Riviera. Hello, Robert. Yeah, how you doing, uh, Mr. Moreno? I'm good. Uh, yeah, the interesting thing about the Zodiac, I studied that one. Very scary. Oh, great. Well, you're going to want to be listening in about two hours. Hey, do you have a theory? And I'll let you talk about whatever you want to talk about. But do you have a theory about what really happened with the Zodiac killer? You know, the Zodiac killer was so sick. He, he was physically sick. He was mental, very mentally sick. You know, the problem with the case, it predates the Internet. And uh, there was a lot of many, many red herrings in the case. I listen. If you want to listen to the Zodiac Killer, a very good description from Brian Hartnell. He was the attorney. He is an attorney now, but back then he was a student at the uh, the area where he was uh, studying. And you know, his girlfriend or his classmate that was murdered, but he survived the attack. And he has a, he he puts together an excellent description. They actually used. He was like uh, working with the co-producers to tell the story when they made the movie, the actual The Zodiac Killer. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think it was in 2007, and it's very well done. And um, you could see uh, 
Brian Hartnell's interview when he was a young man and uh, recent. And on YouTube, there's many, many. They also have one with Michael McGough. Michael McGough is uh, neurologically very, very damaged from the shooting, but he also was a survivor. And, of course, uh, many other people like Paul Stein, they were killed. And, Interesting. Uh, but he he's a very elusive man, and uh, it's I don't think they will ever really truly find him as a, his identity. It's just uh, one of those things. And one of the most interesting cases, apart from the uh, the Fatal Vision one, which is another interesting case with uh, Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. Yeah, I haven't looked at that one too closely, but I'll put that on my list of uh, of cases to have a look at as well. Did you have another comment, Robert? Um. Well, yeah, about the uh, the um, Trump thing. Yeah, I think they should show it. I mean, it's really unfortunate what they're doing to Trump. They just want to destroy the man and his family. And uh, if they shouldn't hide anything, you know what I mean? Exactly. Just, exactly. And, and let let us see everything and let us be the judge of what's important. It shouldn't be up to a reporter to be the gatekeeper for what they want to what they want to show us. Thanks for the call, Robert. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Well, one possibility with the medication error is they may have given generic medicine instead of like a brand name medicine in the bottle. That can make a difference in pills. But it certainly times, could. It certainly could. Uh, but um, I, I, you know, I mean, if it's definite who, error, right? Then I, it could be an error. For humans, it can be very dangerous. In hospitals, the pharmacists are overworked. A lot of times they're doing 80 hours. And if they make a dispensing error with pain medicine, they they can kill people by giving a triple dose of pain medicine. Thank you, Paul. 800-848-9222. Horrible. I mean, medical errors are always horrible. But that's why I wanted to mention this. I know uh, a lot of people who comment in the Facebook group who can't stand anything that I do, who um, somehow still manage to listen to all four hours of this program. Sometimes people say, oh, Frank, no one cares about your cat or when your son naps or anything along those lines. Maybe they don't. I don't care. Uh, But I wanted to make sure that you heard this story so that you know, check your medicine and check your cat's medicine. 800-848-9222. Jeff is on Long Island. Hello, Jeff. Hey, what's going on, buddy? Uh, yeah, not too this much. Not too much. This, this is Jeff Manorville, your, your old buddy over oh, here. Oh, Jeff. Ah, Manorville, Jeff. You ever run into my brother-in-law yeah. out there, Jeff? I ran into him probably, probably saw, saw him at King Cone. Excellent. 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 I'm betting he was <laughs> buying some protein powder. <laughs> Listen, I want them to show... The minute he walks in until the minute he walks out. You know why? So the fake media can't can't change it. Because this way, everybody in America knows exactly what's going on. Right. Thank you, Jeff. And look, if this was someone that I believed was guilty, for instance... Um, I would want to see the trial just as well. So I I happen to agree on this particular case. I think it's the weakest of the four cases that they're talking about bringing against him. But even if I thought it was the strongest case, that would not affect my view at all. Whether I was ready to throw the book at Trump and see him in prison for years or whether I think this case should be dismissed outright, I want to see every single minute of this. 
because I want to be the judge of what's important, not rely on someone else. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program? Uh, be sure to join our Facebook group. Uh, you can go to Facebook and just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M O R A N O Radio Fans and Haters. Let me get right back to your calls in a moment. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, Listen to the most recent edition of the Racket Report. We dive headfirst into the world of the Detroit Mafia. You know, I'm going to avoid overselling this for two reasons. One, I like to undersell and have you be pleasantly surprised. But two, because a woman was listening on Friday or Thursday, and she said that she found my pitch of the racket report and the latest episode so convincing she almost stopped listening to the show live to go listen to the racket report pocket do not do that do not do that listen after the show after the show um my guest this week was scott bernstein and we talked all about the um detroit mob And I have to tell you, I am very familiar with the New York mob and the kind of the origins of the American mafia in general. You know what I knew about the Detroit mob? Nothing. I knew that they were somehow involved in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. That, what I just said, was the sum total of what what my knowledge was about the Detroit mafia. Well, I got quite an education. Give us a little bit of background on the Detroit mob itself. Well, in some ways, there was a parallel to what was going on in New York, and it wasn't a coincidental parallel. It was a coordinated parallel uh, at the uh, final, you know, final age, or sorry, final years, final vestige of prohibition. Um, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, you know, created uh, this idea of an American La Cosa Nostra, where there would be 26 different crime families and representing different cities and regions. And from that, what is now the Toko's early crime family, the modern-day Detroit Mafia, was birthed 
and it was birthed from a consolidation of a number of organized crime groups that were operating in Detroit throughout Prohibition. And at the very end, at this time, 1931, in the fall of 1931, where all this was happening uh, in New York, in Chicago, and in, you know, in Detroit, simultaneously, the Detroit mob, or the Detroit underworld, I should say, erupted into what was known as the Crosstown Mob War. Uh, this interview was so interesting, and it was done in a manner that was not sensationalistic at all. It was very just the facts, ma'am, and uh, he's a very good reporter and has delved uh, into this in a big way. So I want to encourage you, listen to the most recent edition of The Racket Report. You can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just search The Racket Report, or if you have iTunes or Spotify or any podcast app, just search The Racket Report. And hit the subscribe button and you'll get all the new episodes. You might want to go back and listen to some of the old episodes as well because a lot of you, especially those of you listening in uh, in Tennessee, in Alaska, in Nevada, uh, you might not have heard, and certainly in Maryland, you might not have heard some of the earlier stuff that I did on the Racket Report or heard me talk about them. I think you're going to find these stories fascinating. We talk with everybody on this podcast. Mobsters, mob victims, mob lawyers. Judges, journalists, uh, family members of victims, family members of mobsters, all sorts of people. And it's really just an interesting podcast, the likes of which you're not going to hear anywhere else. So search The Racket Report on iTunes or anywhere else. If you do listen on iTunes, be sure to give us a uh, a nice five-star review along with a nice comment because that helps more people find us. Neil is on Staten Island. How How's your health, Neil? Uh. It's a long story, Frank, and uh, we don't have enough time. Oh, boy. Okay. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> what I was going to say was uh, when it comes to the medication, uh, since they screwed up, they sent you the wrong one, and they didn't send you one. I don't know why you have to wait till Tuesday. When, when I would have called up, I would have told them to overnight it because it's their mistake. I agree. Well, uh, yeah, I agree. Well, so maybe we'll uh, get something today. Believe me, uh, my wife read them the riot act like you wouldn't believe. I I, I was afraid to go near her after I heard the tongue lashing she gave the people on the phone. I could imagine. The other thing I wanted to say was when it comes to the sheets, Bill Frank, maybe you should try it. Maybe you'll think it's good. (laughs) Well done, Neil. Well done. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Ralph is in Brooklyn. Hello, Ralph. Hello, Frank. How are you? Good. Uh, good. Uh, with the respect to the medication that you got, the wrong medication in the, in the package for your cat, there's the other side of that story. Someone was expecting that medication that you got. Perhaps right. they got the medication that uh, you were supposed to get, and did they follow through? What's the other side of the story? Yeah, it's a great question, Ralph. And that's one of the reasons my wife so stressed to them exactly what had gone wrong here. That is a great point. All right, 800-848-9222. No guests next hour, so we're going to have plenty of time for your calls, comments, questions, thoughts. Any subject is fair game, including anything we've touched upon this hour. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
I do like to talk a great deal about mental health because I feel like mental health is something that um, doesn't get talked about enough. And it encompasses such a wide variety of subjects. Look, everybody's mental health could be a little bit better. I don't know someone who um, who's couldn't be. But you have a problem with the seriously mentally ill, and that dovetails pretty neatly with crime in a lot of areas. Because a lot of times people that are, say, paranoid schizophrenic or who are dealing with severe violent mental illness, if that is left untreated, they're not only a danger to themselves, but they're a danger to others around them. And I think a lot of people have talked about different solutions about how to address that problem. But one of the real problems that we've seen among young people and the elderly alike is we have seen skyrocketing rates of issues like anxiety and depression. And uh, Senator John Fetterman, a Democrat of Pennsylvania, not somebody that I ever would have voted for, and um, I think it's a shame that he was elected, quite honestly. Aside from his politics, I find it just absolutely absurd that he's running around campaigning while he's a lieutenant governor wearing a hoodie. I mean, I think it's just ridiculous. And again, I'm no great fashion plate, but I just uh, I, I think it's almost beneath the dignity of the office that you're seeking. Even my friend Curtis Lewa. His whole life, since he was 17, he's been running around in a red beret and red sateen jacket. When he was seeking a serious office, like mayor of the city of New York, he still wore the beret when he would go on TV and be in debates and things like that. But he would wear a suit, a suit and tie. He, not because he's a big suit and tie guy, but because he had a little bit of respect for the office that he was seeking. But whatever, I don't want to get into a whole uh, discussion about John Fetterman's wardrobe. Well. It was uh, it was revealed not long ago that Fetterman, uh, six weeks ago, had checked himself into Walter Reed Military Medical Center and admitted himself to be treated for clinical depression. And he did something, quite honestly, at the time and now, which I think is very brave and very courageous, and it's something that I want to talk about. And he used the opportunity to urge those suffering from mental health challenges, including depression, to seek health, uh, excuse me, seek help. And he's set to return to the U.S. Senate on April 17th after a two-week holiday recess, who said the senator planned to spend the time until then in Pennsylvania with his family and his constituents. Um, I still would never vote for this guy because I don't agree with him on a lot of things. But I really do think that Fetterman's decision to reveal his depression publicly reflected a new openness among some public figures to talk about their mental health challenges. And the fact that he made a point of holding himself out as an example of the change that is possible with treatment, I have to tell you, my respect for this guy has skyrocketed. I still would not vote for him, but I think this is an incredibly brave thing that he's doing. I think it's a brave thing for anybody in the public eye to do this. But to do this when you're a politician 
and people are casting judgment on you day in and day out? I think that's a really ballsy thing to do. And I give them a lot of credit for getting this conversation going because too many people, they're afraid to talk with someone. They're afraid to seek help. And I give them a lot of credit. Here was uh, John Fetterman on CBS Sunday Morning talking about this yesterday. I had stopped leaving my bed. I stopped eating. I was dropping uh, weight. I stopped engaging some of the most things that I love in my life. I had an, a conversation with my 14-year-old, and he said, Dad, what's wrong? We're, we're great. We're here. Uh, and you, you won an incredibly sad moment where my 14-year-old can't possibly understand why you can't get out of your bed. And I have talked to so many people with clinical depression, and I've been depressed at different times in my life. And, you know, I I wouldn't say I was ever at the point of being clinically depressed. I never got prescribed antidepressants, which there's a big debate about their efficacy, but I was never diagnosed as clinically depressed. But there have been times where I've been I've been having a tough time. And I think a lot of people have. And I don't know. I'm being totally honest with you. I share almost everything with this with this audience. If this was me and I had to be or I chose to be admitted to a treatment facility for depression, I don't know that I would be as brave as Fetterman is here. Because you do worry, will this affect my future prospects of getting a job? Will this make my colleagues think less of me in some way? Will this make my bosses think I'm not up for the tasks that uh, that I'm doing? And I don't know that I would have done this as openly as Fetterman has. So what I'd like to do is this. If one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of the people who tend to be listening live to the radio right now are people who in many cases are suffering from clinical depression. And I've talked with uh, Dr. Judy about this. I've talked with Dr. Jeffrey Gardier about this. I've talked with Dr. Keith Ablo about this. I've talked with scores of mental health professionals, some obscure, some well-known. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people who are up right now listening to the radio are doing it because they're lonely. Maybe they're disabled. Maybe they, uh, their, their husband or wife has passed away and the kids have moved out of their house and they're living by themselves and their only real friend, their only daily interaction on a regular basis is the radio. When you're that lonely, it does become very easy to fall into depression. So what I'd like to do is get from you some strategies on how to combat depression. And I'm not talking about as a replacement for treatment, because I think if you're ever depressed to the point where it's debilitating, like what John Fetterman described there, an inability to get out of bed, uh, rapid weight loss, you absolutely need uh, to seek some sort of treatment. And there are a lot of affordable treatment options available. But there's a lot of other people that may find themselves going through a rough patch. And either in addition to professional treatment or 
maybe a, a stop before you get to professional treatment. What is something that you would suggest to someone listening who thinks they might be depressed about how they can deal with it? Um, one of the things that they say always works, and 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 I'm talking more because I don't want to get in the I don't want to get in the mode of recommending certain medications or anything like that because I'm not a doctor and I won't know anything. If you come on and you rep- you you recommend X Y Z antidepressant, I have no idea if that's good or bad, and I don't want necessarily drug recommendations going out over the airwaves. But I would love to know some some ways of combating depression without medication. One of the things that I've read time and again, other than talking with a friend about your issues, one of the things that I've read time and again that does help is exercise. I, I apparently when you exercise, even if it's only minimal, you, you get these endorphins flowing that even if it's a struggle while you're while you're doing the workout, it does put your brain in a better situation. And uh, so the other thing that I've said, and I know this is sometimes easier said than done if there's a lot of things weighing on your mind, is they say that uh, keeping a regular sleep schedule really helps. But other than those, other than talking to someone, ideally a friend or a professional, other than exercise, other than keeping a regular sleep schedule, do you have any other suggestions for what can be done to help someone if they feel like they're dealing with depression? And again, I want to encourage you, if you are dealing with clinical depression, the likes of which Fetterman just described there, you try to speak with a professional, but I'd love to give some people some coping mechanisms or some strategies to beat back that tide of depression. Because I have to tell you, I have known some people that have uh, suffered from clinical depression, and thankfully, almost all of them have made their way out of it. But it's something that affects everyone around them if they have a support group or a family. It can, it's something that can lead to all sorts of other negative behaviors like drug or alcohol abuse. And it's something that in some cases really is like someone is dead but just has their eyes open. They're like the walking dead. They don't enjoy the kind of things that they used to do. They don't interact with any of their former peers They're incredibly irritable at work and things of that nature. So I think we could do a real public service for people if either you or someone you know, whenever I hear that, I always think of Robert Stack on Unsolved Mysteries. If you or someone you know has seen the sign of depression, please call the number at the bottom of your screen. I don't mean to be flippant because it is a serious subject, but hopefully listening to this show will hopefully keep you a little less depressed. But if someone, if you or someone you know has dealt with depression and has some non-medication-related strategies to beat it back, what's worked for you? And again, I want to caution people, don't um, do this in lieu of medication. And just because it worked for Mike doesn't mean it will work for Sam. So I'm just curious, anecdotally, 
what has worked for people that have been uh, dealing with these kind of things. 800-848-9222. Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, <laughs> what I would say is take whatever, I and mean, what's worked for me, take whatever negative energy that's befalling you um, and channel that into some sort of volunteer work. Mm. In, 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 my, in my particular case, it was joining a conservative party. It was taking part in New York Freedom Rallies, anti-mandate rallies, and other, other activity. Take that and use that energy to make, that, to make it a better world, a better city, a better block, a better something. You know, whatever, whatever your persuasions might be, it might be different than my, my political leanings, my – Right, that's is, great advice. Take, I love that. Go Thank ahead. you. Yeah, no, that that that's really really so effective. I've recommended that same thing to uh, to people as well. But now, Norman, let me ask you, and I think that's that's seriously really good advice. Um, volunteer work, whether it's political or nonprofit, or you know anything, even if it's just going to the library, or drag queen or not, and volunteering to re- read to children. <laughs> but um, Norman, what if someone is depressed because? They've essentially they're essentially an invalid. They're immobile. They're disabled in some right. way, and they can't um, they can't leave their house. Let's say, mm-hmm. uh, with, at least not without a great deal of difficulty. What would you suggest to someone like that? Okay, well, with someone with that, I would say, look, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a uh, a troglodyte when it comes to technology. But basically, what I would a lot of or whatever, what I would say to them is, if they have access to the internet, perhaps they can volunteer via via the computer somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's uh, I think that's very sound advice, Norman. Well done, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I think that's really good. Actually, sincerely, I wasn't being patronizing. I think that's a great thing. Whatever you're interested in, if it's politics, if it's pets, if it's children, if it's parks, if it's, um, you know, there are so many opportunities to volunteer. And it really, it really does give you a sense of purpose, especially if you're newly retired and I think this works great if you're a widow or a widower and you're newly retired and you're feeling kind of listless. I think that's a great one. 800-848-9222. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. How are you, Frank? Um, I, I usually try to, when people talk about suicide, I usually try to help them and recommend they seek counseling. I'm, I'm Jewish, and they we always talk about should seek help. I saw a wonderful movie called Shalom Tango and there were a lot of issues there financial that people were having and uh, the important lesson was to always seek advice and to do also I recommend doing the things you really really love to do and enjoy and focus on those focus on the positive end of your life not the negative things but always seek advice yeah, I think that's a good one, Howard. Now, what what if you don't know who to seek advice from? Let's say you're someone that you you live your daily life without friends or family that you interact with. Where do you go? I would start with the computer and try to you know, and also get ideas from other people. Sam, you know, that's in, in this openness in this discussion. Where can I get help? You have to. Sp- I mean, it's very difficult if you don't have anybody, but 
uh, the computer helps a lot also. Yeah, it can. It can, Howard. And and that's one of the great things. And this is one of the things that people were saying about the uh, potential of a TikTok ban. Some folks were pointing out that TikTok is used by a lot of folks to help them deal with some of these issues and find a community of people with similar interests or might be dealing with similar problems. And look, that does strike a chord with me. Uh, I'm not saying that um, TikTok shouldn't be banned. I have some real concerns about it. But I thought that was a very legitimate point that some people raised. Joe is in Ron Con Coma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, great show. Um, ever losing both my parents. I'm going to be open about this. I got, you know, really, really depressed. Uh, my kids' births helped. But I uh, found uh, I was going to a therapist, you know, once a week to you know, sharing. And she told me to keep a journal. And every time I got depressed or something bothered me, write in the journal and then revisit it, whether it was a couple hours later, next day, and then see how I could fix that problem that got me aggravated or made me depressed. I try to keep very busy all the time, uh, you know, coaching and doing stuff for my kids and working two jobs. But sometimes, uh, Frank, when the holidays come around and you start remembering your childhood, it's really tough. And I, I try not to take medicine. I try to do positive things. And um, it's it's rough. And I, I feel for all the people that are out there that are going through this. As do I, Joe. And w- well said. I think um, that – well, so give me, give people some coping strategies if they have lost loved ones and they're reminded of the uh, – kind of the pain of that loss – around Palm Sunday or Easter or Passover or Ramadan, whatever the case may be, what's a way that you found effective in terms of being able to channel that grief into something other than being depressed? I try to keep the traditions rolling that my family, my mom and dad did, uh, telling my uh, kids about movies. My dad was a big movie person, always watching Ben-Hur and stuff like that. My mom was a big cook, so uh, making uh, the Easter rustica pies and stuff like that. I try to keep the traditions rolling, but it, it's just uh, it just hits you sometimes, Frank, and you don't expect it, and it's it's really really rough. Have a good night, Frank. Take care, Joe. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Carol is in Pittsburgh. Uh, Carol, Hi. did you experience? Uh, did you go to Steel City Con this weekend out there? Steel City what? Steel, there was a convention, <laughs> Steel City Con. No, I never. I didn't hear about it. Okay. Well, I, apparently it was really something. I, um, really? I, I don't even oh. know what it. What it, it's at the Monroeville Convention Center. Oh, okay, okay. No, Kelsey Grammer was there. It. Jesse Ventura was there. Oh, um, oh yeah. Randy Quaid yeah. was there. Yes, I heard about it on the radio. I heard that Kelsey Grammer was going to be somewhere in Monroeville. Yes. Yes. But, no, I don't know much about it. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. That's okay. What's on your mind this morning, Carol? Okay. I do have – okay. I was born with addictions. I do believe uh, we are, we're born with our little things, you know, with our own little things that not everyone has around us. But, anyway, um, I was in a 12-step program for years. I do believe in them. But here's – uh, I have three things. And by the way, thank you for this. You're wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, yes. Um, uh, the first thing would be find your higher power. 
And the second would be um, eat well, eat vegetables. That's big. And it's hard. I know it's hard for us, for people. Uh, And the third thing, um, and I learned this in first grade, do something for somebody else. And it gets the mind, it, it, it changes things. Do some things for other people, like that man was saying about volunteering. Yeah. Um, I don't volunteer, but I do try to do things, especially around this time of year. Uh, I do try to go out of my way to do nice things for others. And it does help. Well, uh, thank you, Carol. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Toronto, Canada. Hello, Tom. Uh, hello again, uh, Frank. Uh, good to talk to you once more. I have a, a bunch of stuff, simple stuff, besides the exercise. And it can be as simple as, you know, just five minutes of, uh, of you know, push-ups, uh, squats, this kind of thing. But a simple walk, just a walk, a 20-minute walk, a uh, cup of coffee or two or three. Um, singing, you know, singing is a wonderful thing to do. So, uh, you know, you, you get some of this karaoke stuff going on your computer or you, you sing along with somebody online there. That's one way. If you're alone, right? Laughing, comedy, etc. You mentioned Seinfeld. That's one way. There's a bunch of stuff you can just laugh through. Faulty Towers, terrific, hilarious stuff. Dancing, getting up and dancing, you know, uh, along to what you're watching, what have you. Um, Go out, do some grocery shopping. Maybe your fridge is low. You need to restock. And then there's mindfulness and gratitude. You know, make a list uh, when you get in these moments and think, okay, three things, or at least one thing. Start with that one thing. And, it, you know, and then, of course, the volunteer work, social work, uh, this kind of thing, and books and studies. There's so many simple things you can do while short of drugs. Well, okay. Thank you, Tom. Well, that's what we're trying to do is help people be armed with strategies. And sometimes this is easier said than done. Look, if you have no energy, sometimes it can be very difficult to uh, go out and, and run a few laps. If you can't get out of bed, it can even sometimes be difficult to do jumping jacks, right? So, um, again, I want to emphasize a hundred times, we're not in any way discouraging anybody from seeking professional help at all. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Forget your troubles and just get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy The Lord is waiting to take your hand Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy We're going to the promised land We're heading across the river Wash your sins away in the tide It's all so peaceful on the other side Forget your troubles and just get happy You better chase all your cares away Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy Get ready for the judgment day This is The Other Side of Midnight I'm Frank Morano That is the great Frank Sinatra 
I was listening to my friend uh, Joe Piscopo who does a terrific Sundays with Sinatra, Ramsey Mazda program, uh, Sunday evenings from 6 to 8 last night. Just sounds terrific. Played some great music, had a whole thematic uh, situation dealing with Sinatra and Japan. Really, just really a great show. If you're a Sinatra fan and you're not tuning into Joe Piscopo on Sunday nights, you have to ask yourself, are you really a Sinatra fan? Now, uh, this was a um, a big uh, pro wrestling weekend uh, because this was the two-day WrestleMania extravaganza. Well, actually, it's more than that. It it, it was um, Friday was the Hall of Fame induction, which I watched a, a portion of. I was very pleased to see the great Muda inducted by my favorite pro wrestler, Ric Flair. And uh, that was just wonderful. I've been a fan of the great Muda, one of the greatest Japanese wrestlers, quite possibly, other than Antonio Inoki, the greatest Japanese uh, wrestler ever. He was inducted. Uh, Stacy Keebler, who was much more famous in the non-wrestling world for dating George Clooney and going on Dancing with the Stars, she was inducted. You had uh, posthumously, and I thought this was wonderful, a posthumous induction into the WWE Hall of Fame of... Uh, Andy Kaufman, the comedian from Taxi, and it was great to see one of the people that helped induct him was uh, Jerry the King Lawler, who's been battling some heart issues, and uh, some other folks as well, but those were the ones that I was the most interested in. And then, as we talked about on Friday, WrestleMania is now a two-day event, which I do not like. I think they should be able to get it all done in one day, but... Maybe if I was, I was still as rabid a wrestling fan as I was, was when I was eight years old, maybe I'd like it. I watched very little of Saturdays. I watched a little bit of the main event on Saturday night, and then I saw a couple of matches Sunday as I was preparing for uh, the show. But uh, the person on our program who probably follows wrestling, you know, more closely than the re- more closely than the rest of us do, is uh, our own Matt Blaze. Matt, uh, what did you watch this weekend? I did watch Saturday night. The whole thing? Yes, the whole thing. I thought it was okay. Now, let me ask you this. You no. have a longtime companion that you cohabitate with, right? Correct. Is she a wrestling fan? No. So was she working Saturday? No. So she's home. Yeah, so she's home. She doesn't get it. She's one of those yeah, people. got it. Got it. You know. My wife's not into it either. But yeah. So um, it's four hours. Right. So when you make the decision to watch that and she's not into it, you're making essentially a decision to, uh, on Saturday night, which when you have our schedule, right. you have essentially two nights with your significant other. You, you're making the decision that you're not spending Saturday night together. Well, we did. I mean, she was there. She was just doing something else. What like, was she doing? She was like playing games on her iPhone or something like that. But she was in the room. Gotcha. But she just doesn't lose. She's just like, I've tried. I Got just it. don't get Got it. it. Yeah, Whatever. My wife's it's the fine. same way. Pretty yeah. Much. So what were your impressions of uh, WrestleMania, day one? Day one, I thought the John Cena-Austin Theory match was good. Um, John Cena came out with the Make-A-Wish kids, which was nice. They said that he's done more Make-A-Wishes than anybody else, over 6,000, and anybody in the whole of uh, Make-A-Wish. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll more on that later. Yeah, I thought, I thought that match could have been longer. Um, the match of the night was not... The main event. I mean, that main event was good. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, but I thought the match of the night was before that, which was Rhea Ripley against a Charlotte Flair. 
You know, I, I'm sorry I didn't get to see that. I never really liked female wrestling, honestly, but I've kind of gotten into it the last couple of years because I do like Ric Flair and I like Charlotte Flair as a personality. So yeah. the fact that she's so uh, dominant and has been such a great performer is really something to watch. I I went to this uh, Blue Lives Matter fundraiser on Saturday, so I couldn't watch it. I would have watched more of it, but I um, I got home and I watched the 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 tail end of it, which uh, I did enjoy very much. So you didn't see any of Sunday? Not yet. No. Are you are you avoiding spoilers so <laughs> that you can catch the tapes? Kind of. Yeah. Well, I'm um, not going to say anything because well, I really don't know actually what. Happened. Yeah. I mean, you kind of know what's going to happen, but at the same time, you still want to see it. Like I knew what was going to happen with Saturday nights. I, I knew what the outcome was going to be. Um, it's interesting that you say about the women's wrestling because I know what you mean. It, it, you didn't think of it as the same as the men, but it's gotten to the point because of Charlotte Flair right. that she's raised the bar that the women and the men um, are pretty equal in terms of what they do. You know, I completely agree with you, and I never thought that I would right. I would say so. But I was watching a little bit on Saturday, and I, you know, I'm watching while I'm working on the show, so I, I'll poke my head up when something interesting happens. And I said to my wife, who happened to be in the room when when this was on, that there was one um, female wrestler on Sunday, not Saturday, Sunday. She had, and I don't want to spoil anything if you haven't seen it, because I don't even remember the names of the wrestlers that were in it. Well, I'll tell you who But she had a um, two women in a sharpshooter at the same time. So that was probably Natalia. That that's exactly who. It was. Yeah, who is yeah. who is Jim Neidhart's daughter. Right, right. I've seen her yeah. in different documentaries yeah. on uh, on that subject. So, uh but I watched on Sunday the Triple Threat Intercontinental match, which I thought was pretty good as well. Oh uh, yeah. Gunther and Gunther uh, and, and McIntyre Sh- and, and, and Drew McIntyre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was uh, I thought that was a good match. And a really incredible athleticism. Uh, on the part of these athletes, much more so than when I used to watch um, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's yeah, the, really incredible. Which is why I started watching mm-hmm. again. And like I said, the reason that I say that the Charlotte Flair-Rhea Ripley match was was by far, to me, the match of the night. There's one. There was one part when they showed it in slow-mo like five times, when Rhea Ripley suplexes Charlotte Flair. But Charlotte Flair, and it's to her credit, flips over so when she lands she lands like on her face instead of on her back like on her shoulders they showed it five times she landed on her wow. face wow. and afterwards they kept showing her and her nose it looked like she had sunburn on her nose and it's like from the mat hit her, her face hitting the mat so when people say like this whole thing about you know wrestling's fake it's scripted yeah i hate when people say it's, that there's athleticism involved I, I, it drives me crazy a lot of athleticism yeah, absolutely. involved Absolutely. And you have to be almost, you have to be really in shit. Think about they're running around back and forth and jumping around, doing all these things oh, 100%. that 100% that you really have to be in shape to yeah. be able to do this. I, uh, I completely agree with you. Now, it is interesting. So my son has about 20 words in his vocabulary, but it's a rapidly expanding vocabulary list. He says duck. Now he's got a duck that he bathes in. Clear as day. He said duck when we were in the bathroom uh, Sunday morning, he says truck. He said we. He's got crayons now. He said blue. He's um. He's learning, learning different, a lot of different words. So, but one of the things that he'll do sometimes when he's when he's crabby is he will um he'll hit 
And sometimes he does it to be funny, but sometimes he does it to be mean. So he'll he'll hit either my wife or me in the face when we're holding him, like smack us. And it's it's a hard hit. And we yell at him and we said, no, don't do that. And we show him, you know, the right way to touch someone's face and that he's got to be gentle. And I had uh, wrestling on last night as uh, after my son was done with the with the bath and she wanted to change the channel. My wife wanted to change the channel and um, I didn't object because it's I wasn't really watching it, number one. And I think logically she's right. She said, you know, we're teaching him not to hit. And then, you know, it was a highlight reel of what had happened the previous night in on WrestleMania. And she said, and the, oh, he's watching these images of these people just hitting one another and slapping one another. How How is he going to take what we say seriously if he's looking at this on television? Now, he's 16 months old, and I, I don't know how closely he was watching it, but she's right. But my question for you is, so I started watching wrestling when I was about five or six, and I loved it. And, you know, I didn't really start to exhibit violent tendencies towards my family members or my friends as a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So I'm wondering for those of you that are parents or have been parents or grandparents, what age do you think it's okay? Beginning at what age do you think it's okay to start watching pro wrestling in front of your child? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I remember uh, my, I have three siblings, but they're all substantially younger than me. So I was already a big wrestling fan, but like a lot of things, you know, you kind of fall out of watching it for a little while, and then you get back into it. You fall out of it, and you get back into it. So I remember my brother, one of them, was five or six years old. And I was a, I was a well-established wrestling fan, but at this point in my life, I was not that into wrestling. And at my dad's, you know, we have the same father, different mothers. At my dad's, they had what was a big thing back at the time, the hot box, where you could watch all the pay-per-view channels for free. Not, I mean, it's totally illegal. I think now they have a digital version of this, but it was totally illegal back then. But it was great. You could see all the wrestling events, all these movies. And so back then is before there was a real viewer guide. The viewer guide was a channel that you'd turn to that would tell you three channels at a time what was coming up. It would take you to know what was on all 78 channels. You, you had to wait 10, 20 minutes. It was, it was terrible. But that was what we had at the, at the time. So what you would do is you'd, you'd flip. You'd click, 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 click. What's on this channel? What's on that channel? Bup, 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 bup. And... I go through the pay-per-view channels. And again, at this point in my life, I didn't know what was on TV. I mean, I didn't know what, I wasn't paying attention to wrestling. But I see that on the pay-per-view, it's WCW Fall Brawl, okay? And it has two of my favorite wrestlers from when I used to watch more regularly wrestling one another. Rick Flair and Arn Anderson. And I, I, even though I hadn't watched wrestling maybe in 10 months, I said, I am watching this. They're best friends. Why are they fighting? And that's another thing that's so fun about wrestling. It's the soap opera aspect of it. And so I stopped. I stopped because uh, I had to watch it. I was transfixed. And my brother, who's five or six years old at the time, may, maybe a little younger, maybe four, but I think he was five, he starts crying because these two men are beating one another up. And my stepmother, who's their mother, 
made me change the channels. You can't put that on. It's it's upsetting. I don't remember if it was Nicholas or Alex, but it's upsetting your brother. I don't want you watching it in front of them. And that was when they were much older than 16 months. So what age is the appropriate age to watch wrestling? So I'm very much, even though I barely watched any of WrestleMania, very much in a pro wrestling mood this weekend. I watched those Hall of Fame inductions on Friday. I'm wearing my Barry Windham T-shirt today. Um, And so I found myself up early on Saturday morning. I think I was up, you know, around 3 o'clock in the morning. And I know better than to turn Curtis on the radio at that time. So I said, all right, you know what? I'm in such a wrestling mood. Let me catch up on one of these wrestling documentaries that A&E puts out. A&E has this series, WWE Legends, and I'm still up to season two. And what I do now, just because my time is so limited, I really only watch the wrestlers that I'm I'm pretty interested in. I, I didn't watch uh, Booker T in season one because I'm just I don't care about Booker T. I didn't watch um, Edge in season two. I watched in season two Bill Goldberg, Lex Luger, uh, a couple other people, and it was interesting stuff. Really well done. Great production value. And so I see that they have a documentary, one of these WWE legend documentaries, about one of the greatest wrestling stables of the mid-1990s, Degeneration X. And Degeneration X only lasted about two years, but they totally redefined the wrestling, the attitude era. They took um, wrestling in the WWF at the time, specifically, something that was dominated by people dressed as clowns or barbarians or dentists or um, repo men in a cheesy mask, and they made it much more adult. Instead of being something that little kids watched, really pretty much only because of Degeneration X, although um, also maybe Stone Cold Steve Austin, they made this into a thing that college kids wanted to watch and adults wanted to watch. And so if, if you're not familiar with Degeneration X, this promo from 1997 with Shawn Michaels, who was sort of the co-founder of Degeneration X, this really says... All, all that you need to know about what kind of group Degeneration X was and how they carried themselves on television. Oh, hey, man, I got news for you. Sometime during this show, we are going to cross paths. And you talk about us being degenerates. You know what? I'm, I'm tired of Generation X getting right. a bad rap. You think Everybody, you're a degenerate? You think you're a degenerate? Well, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm positive I'm one. I guess I'd have to be one. Well, of them. You know, Generation X always gets a bad rap. Everybody calls it Degenerates. Degeneration X. Is that us? Degeneration X. Triple H, HBK, China, Ravishing Rick. We are Degeneration X. You make the rules and we will break them. Yeah. So it was really interesting. I watched it. I watched the whole thing. And um, I thought it was really well done. And then I started. They had one of these WWE Legend series on WrestleMania as well as an institution, and specifically the first WrestleMania. And I started watching it, but I only watched about 10 minutes. Then I think I moved on to something more productive. I said to myself, "Can I, I, I always complain, I don't have time to get my work done. Can I really justify the few hours that I'm not sleeping? Can I really justify watching two consecutive WrestleMania documentaries, wrestling documentaries? And ultimately the answer was, uh, was no. But um, 
But it's a big weekend for wrestling fans, that's that's for sure. And what I wouldn't have given as a young wrestling fan to have something like the WWE Network, but I do wonder, you know, I'd like to watch wrestling with my son. I'm hoping he's into it when he's a little older. But what age is the appropriate age where you could put that on where he doesn't think that hitting people or throw, he's not in a position to throw chairs, but throwing chairs at them or throwing salt in their faces. What age can you have that on without him thinking that that's an appropriate way to behave? 800-848-9222. I think I'm going with five. But if you're as sensitive as my brother is, maybe that's not the right age. You know, I think it maybe depends on the child. So understanding that every child is different, ballpark, what's the appropriate age? 800-848-9222. Rick is in Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes. In fact, good morning. Morning. Uh, I don't think there's any particular uh, age, but it depends on when, like, Carmine would be able to understand this. First of all, from the very beginning, don't tell him it's real. Let him think that it's entertainment. This way you won't be disappointed when he finds out it's not real. Second, that it is entertainment. Like, like with me, uh, when I was growing up, the Three Stooges was a problem. Kids were hitting each other with hammers, poking each other in, in, in the eyes and stuff. And you had to teach the kids that these are actors that know what they're doing, blah, mm. blah, blah. Yeah, Superman, that was another big thing. When Superman came out, kids were just jumping out of windows with towels uh, tied around their neck. And you had to teach them, this is a show. As soon as karma can understand that this is entertainment, you don't do this, only actors on TV do this then that would be fine. Uh, Very good, Rick. Thank you. Hey, by the way, if people are interested in seeing a recent photo of Carmine, I have shared one on the Facebook. Excuse me, on the Instagram. You could find me on Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. I shared a photo of Carmine that uh, that my wife took over the weekend. Uh, Very handsome child, if I do say so myself. Thankfully, he looks like my wife. Uh, 800-848-9222. Joe is in the Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, Frank. Uh, something similar happened to me when I was five. Basically, I saw boxing on TV a few times, and then I said I was concerned about my ability to fight. So uh, the guy delivered at the time the Long Island Press and was eight years old. I met him twice and started full-scale punching the guy who punched back. He didn't, for, and I held my own, and I was relieved that I could spar with somebody bigger and older than me. So it did trigger that those incidents from just watching boxing on TV. And it wasn't like I could read the sports section of the paper, uh, and so it wasn't like I was, you know, I could read at the point at that point, but, uh, it was uh, weird that it triggered that type of behavior, you know, and I remember that's what caused it. And I was like, so I'll advert to my previous question. What is the appropriate age to have wrestling on, um, in the room with a child? Uh, I would say maybe Seven-ish? Seven. Six to seven. Okay. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Joe. Matt, how old, just curious, how old were you when you started watching? I was 12. 12? Oh, you were old. Yeah, just because that's when I discovered it. I mean, uh-huh. back then, wrestling was on two two times. It was on at 11 a.m. on Channel 9, and then it was on midnight on Channel 9 on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. That was the only time wrestling was on. 
So I was 12 when I first started watching. But well, I now think what, what year are we talking here? 1982. Oh, oh okay. So okay, you're talking right, about yeah, the yeah, Wild yeah. Samoans were the yeah, 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 before sure. the rock and wrestling and Hogan right, and all that. Right. Um, right before that. But I would say once someone has an understanding, a child has an understanding that it's not okay to hit someone is when they can start watching wrestling. Whether, and that's probably about five years old. Okay. Maybe four or five, All right. I, uh, I would say. Okay, that's not, that's not bad. That's kind of what I'm thinking. 800-848-9222. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, good morning, Frank. How's everything? Uh, pretty well, I think. That's good. That's good. Listen, I would say, what, like, as far as we, we, with Carmine, and I would watch, you know, watch to see how he reacts after he hasn't watched for a while. I don't think there's a certain age. I think it all depends on the individual. Like, with me, I remember as far back as my father trying to get the wrestling matches on the TV through a static channel. I mean, I, I, I think I should go back as far as I remember as four years old, maybe three. I, I can remember a long, long, long time. I remember it was a while. But I, I, I never acted out, but until I was in my eight, you know, until I was eighteen, and you know, those were for other reasons. Yeah, I'm not. We're not, was, we're not blaming wrestling on that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was just a screwball anyway. I was stupid in my teenage years. Right. You know, like I said, it was for other reasons, but it was never because of that. Gotcha. Watch your kids. It's that easy. Just watch them. Some kids react different. Some. Some might get scared. Some might act out. Carmine might be like just because he's cranky, like you're saying. It might well, not no, no. He, didn't, he didn't react at all yesterday. It was just my wife didn't want it on uh, because she didn't oh, want she, to, yeah. him to think that that was an appropriate way to uh, interact oh. with people. He didn't. He didn't react at all. I don't even think he. I don't even think he put his head up. He was more concerned with um, you know drinking from his bottle. Get back to work, Paul. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Your calls straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Time to play the game. This is uh, Triple H's theme song. Uh, He doesn't wrestle anymore. He's now an executive. He had the wisdom and the foresight to dump whoever he was with and marry the boss's daughter. And that has worked out very well for him uh, professionally. Not to say that he's not doing a great job, but it is interesting to see how that has worked out. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We are uh, less than a week away from Easter. Now, if you're like me and you are just furious at egg prices, there is something that people are doing. Have you heard about this? I'm not joking. I am not joking. The latest trend, because people don't want to, they don't want to spend half their paycheck on 
eggs just to die. The latest trend, believe it or not, is not Easter eggs. But the new Easter egg is the Easter potato. Yes, the potato. It has gone up. It's much cheaper. Egg prices are still high. And the potato industry is looking to scramble up Easter traditions with a budget-friendly alternative. Easter potatoes. So potato producers are taking advantage of the fact that the price of eggs was up 55.4% in February compared to a year earlier. Meanwhile, potatoes, their prices only increase only. If this was any other thing that we were comparing it to, it would be a big deal. But potato prices only increased 13.5% year over year. So the idea of painting or dyeing spuds this Easter, it started circulating in January as memes about high egg prices flooded the Internet, but people are doing it. People are, the, the whole mantra is dying Easter eggs is so 2022. In 2023, we paint Easter potatoes. I'm going to try this. I don't want to waste an egg that costs a fortune. So these memes inspired a farmer's marketing group called Potatoes USA to provide tips on painting and to push the hashtag Easter potatoes. So if you are painting one of these Easter potatoes, make sure you use that hashtag so people know how to see it. Easter potatoes. 800-848-9222. I'm also on Twitter, by the way, at Frank Morano. I was hanging out with uh, Mayor Giuliani on Saturday night. Instead of watching WrestleMania, we were at the Blue Lives Matter event. A lot of other great people there, City Council Member Joe Borelli, City Council Member Vicky Paldino, and the most important people were all the police officers that were there. But I retweeted, I tweeted a photo that I took with uh, Mayor Giuliani and uh, Maria Ryan. And I think we all look good in this photo. So if you want to take a look, it's uh, at Frank Morano. Although Mayor Giuliani's not smiling. Smiled more off air or off camera. It was yucking it up with me. We were talking maybe because it was a police event or an event honoring, you know, fallen servicemen, fallen service officers that he didn't want to smile or maybe he just wasn't that happy to see me. But uh, you could see the photo and judge for yourself. By the way, yours truly still has a blue check mark. Apparently they are changing how they do it. All right. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, hearing Enter Sandman, it does remind me because this was the, uh, the, the baseball theme for a great closer Mariano Rivera and another great closer, especially if you were a Met fan uh, named Billy Wagner. The um, Met season is off to a great start. We are in a very good situation here. I am liking this uh, very much. Even that game that we lost, it's not exactly as if we were embarrassed. We. I mean, I'm playing no role in the outcome of this game, but I'm watching the games closely. And I must say, I am liking these shorter games. I am. You can watch a whole game and not need to pack a lunch for the day. I mean, it's really it's really something. Friday night's game, it was over. I, I got up, went to the bathroom. By the time I got back, it was over. Not literally, but point is, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. I, I still do bristle whenever I see, like in uh, Sunday's Met game, one of the batters for the, um, the Marlins was struck out. They struck out. Not looking, not swinging, but they struck out waiting. They were too long to get into the batter's box, and there was a a strike three to penalize them. And there's just something about that that strikes me as so unjust. And again, I I don't think they needed to limit the pickoff attempts or um, have larger bases. But I'll tell you, the consequence of the fewer pickoff attempts and the larger bases, people are stealing bases like crazy. I think they, there was more stolen bases on opening day than in any opening day in half a century. Maybe more. So, um, so far, I think it's working out the way that baseball wanted. Will it result in higher TV viewership and more younger fans, which is what they'd hoped? Time will tell. Um, Hey, Kenneth, when last we heard from you, you were taking off Friday morning so that you could be at a baseball game Thursday afternoon. How was your experience at the uh, Yankees opener? It was outstanding. I never went to sleep, actually, prior to the game. Hmm. So I was up for like 25 hours, and uh, it was an experience for sure. But the game was two hours and 35 minutes in totality. Never thought I'd Crazy. see it for an American League game, especially. But it was a blast. I mean, Judge hit that home run, second pitch swinging. You know, a couple of people, crazy. when I was at the Blue Lives Matter Gala, how much would you pay for a signed Aaron Judge jersey? I think a game-worn jersey. Game-worn Max, I'd go like four hundred bucks. Four hundred. Okay, yeah. so this was selling the opening bid at the silent auction. I didn't bid. I almost bid on the Pete Alonso signed jersey, but the opening bid at this uh, Blue Lives Matter gala that I was at was uh, twelve hundred dollars. You're not bidding on that, no, sir. I came this close to bidding on this Pete Alonso jersey, and then I said, Frank, you have no money. You cannot. <laughs> You cannot spend $700 for a jersey you're never even going to wear. Um, but uh, I feel like it is a good investment, though, in the in the person of both Judge and um, and Pete Alonzo. That's true. I think they're both destined to be Hall of Famers, and, you know, who knows agreed, uh, what happens. So, But still, you have to have the $700 to begin with. You know, last question about this, uh, Kenneth. A couple of people, when I was talking about these rules changes on Thursday morning, 
said that they felt that like if they were going to the game, tickets are so crazy expensive, the concessions are so crazy expensive that they actually don't mind a longer game because they feel like they're getting their money's worth. And I used to feel that way with a longer movie, when, especially when I was a younger guy and I had more time and less money. I would kind of want it to be long because I'm paying for that. Right. What was the vibe of the fans that you were you were hanging out with? I think everybody was far too intoxicated to care about okay. that right. in the bleachers, you know. In so the bleachers, Everybody's that's right. crazy in the bleachers. They are. They are the bleacher creatures. All right. We're going to do commendations in a moment, and then we're going to talk about the Zodiac Killer with Mark Hewitt, an award-winning public speaker, true crime author, and a guy who's written some terrific books about the Zodiac Serial Killer series. He's got some interesting theories on this, and we're going to go through some of the seri- some of the theories as to who the Zodiac Killer is that you might not have heard over the years. But first... Eddie in Babylon has been patiently holding. Hello, Eddie. Uh, Frank, I, I really uh, <clears throat> I thank you for all your topics. And Kenny's a great uh, screen caller. I grew up um, with, who was it? Uh, Ernie Kovacs, Unfilthy, mm. uh, and the Honeymooners. But you, you look at the Three Stooges, right? And I think, you know, you're talking about Carmine and him hitting you in the face and you're, you and your wife moderating him. I think I know bullies in high school. I think if you don't have domestic violence at home, um, I, I think it teaches the kid what you and your wife do. I mean, lovingly, I came around the corner once with my baseball mitt as a kid, and my mother's at the kitchen sink, and my father's behind her. He has his hands on her breast, and he look at me. He looks at me, and he said, "Oh, you caught me loving your mother." And years later, I said, "They were in their fifties. Oh my God, they still loved each other." And back to what you said about. Um, you know, suicide and being depressed. I had a friend or two that committed suicide. Uh, friend Peter called myself, my friend Chris, and both of us didn't answer the phone. And Chris comes over the house and said, did Peter call you? I go, yeah. He goes, he had a fight with his wife, and he blew his head off oh. the shotgun. I'm like, oh. oh, my God. And, and so, you know, I'll forever damn myself to say that I didn't pick up the phone because he always called me. I go going on my fishing trip, and I, I, just, I just didn't want to be yelled at. But I, I, I always think to people who are down, I said it's a permanent solution to a temporary Right, problem. right, right. But I, know, I, I think, um, and, and again, I, you're certainly right, and I've heard that many times since I was literally in the sixth grade, and it's certainly true. But I think most people are not going to get uh, to that point. And hopefully that's certainly the case. No, but I, a lot of people yeah. will get to the right. situation where uh, John Fetterman was in. Where they're unable to move because of their of their depression. Well, it depends on what it was caused by. You know, he maybe he didn't want to be reelected, and it's too much for him because of his stroke and everything. You know, maybe he can't handle it. You know, who knows? There's only you know, there's well, only so much yeah, to I handle mean, it. That's true. That's true. These are issues, the depression issues that he's been dealing with, though, for a long time, long before he was in the Senate. Hey, Eddie, thank you. Uh, we have um, we have a, a bunch of other stuff to get to. Otherwise, uh, we would continue the conversation. I always enjoy your calls. All right. Without further ado, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. Let me begin by commending. Sergio Romo, speaking of baseball. So he 
knew the deal the moment he re-signed with the San Francisco Giants. It wasn't a comeback for the 40-year-old reliever. It was just a chance for him to end his career in front of the fans who supported him most. Sergio Romo um, thanked fans after his final appearance in professional baseball. He got that opportunity on Monday when he made the last professional baseball appearance of his career. Romo was called in to pitch during a spring training game at Oracle Park so Giants fans could give him one more ovation before he retired for good. Little did those fans know that Romo would also pay tribute to them during the outing. Throughout his final spring training, Romo made a deal with every kid who asked for his autograph. And I think this is so cool. Listen to this. If he agreed to sign their piece of memorabilia, their ball or their jersey or their bat or their hat, whatever, they would have to sign his cap. And when Romo took the mound for the last time, last Monday, a week ago, he wore that cap, now full of autographs from young Giants fans. And that was his way of thanking fans for their support of him over the years. I thought it was great. Uh, I thought it was uh, absolutely wonderful. Uh, And good for the Giants for giving him this opportunity. Because I know a lot of other organizations probably wouldn't. So good good for the Giants. And Sergio Romo, I do commend you. I must also commend, and unfortunately this is a posthumous commendation, and I hate to... I hate to mention this, and I went back and forth because I have tried to mention nothing about this tragic Nashville shooting. But the heroism of the leader of the Covenant School, Catherine Kuntz, absolutely must be recognized. She's 60 years old, young woman in the grand scheme of things. She's the head of the school and a lifelong educator And she lived to love and encourage kids, parents, and colleagues. And she died trying to protect her students from this heavily armed former student who killed her, two of her colleagues, and three nine-year-old children. She gave her life to protect the students that she loved. And this is just extraordinary. She confronted the shooter in a school hallway, knowing that he was armed to the teeth, shooting people. And um, she didn't care. She died protecting her students. I mean, this woman is incredible. They ought to put a statue of this woman up at at this school, at the very least, because my heart breaks for this woman. And at the other, on the other hand, I'm just in awe of um, her bravery. I must also give a commendation to the nation of Finland. No, this has nothing to do with the elections that took place in Finland yesterday. You don't know how lucky you are, folks, because I spared you 15 to 20 minutes of talk about the Finnish parliamentary elections. And I had it on my list until the very last minute before the show. I'm trying to rationalize somehow in my brain talking about the Finnish elections. And then I have like a devil on one hand, and that devil is saying, Frank, come on. 
you can make the Finnish elections interested in people that don't even know anything about the Finnish parliamentary system. You can do it. And then the angel is saying, Frank, no one in your audience cares about the Finnish elections. You're lucky if they care about American elections. Do not bore them for 15 to 20 minutes with your analysis of the Finnish parliamentary elections. So the angel won and you are spared conversation about the Finnish elections. But that has no that's no bearing on why they're getting a commendation. Well, the Nordic nation has been ranked the happiest country on earth for the 6th consecutive year. So sure enough, the World Happiness Report, as released by the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network, they found Finland to be the happiest country in the world and the country with the best well-being. So congratulations to the Finnish. Might not be a bad place to live or a bad place to visit. You heard Matt Blaze allude to this before, but I must give a commendation to John Cena, a great pro wrestler, and I love that he's still active. Um, he has now set a world record, a Guinness World Record, and this is the kind of world record that people should aspire to break. And I don't know that it ever will be. It's just extraordinary, and it says a lot about him. He has fulfilled... 650 life-changing Make-A-Wish requests. I mean, that's incredible. You imagine the emotional toll that takes on him being around that many sick children and that many terminally ill children? I mean, at the Blue Lives Matter Gala, they had a picture of this little girl whose wish was to be a police officer. And she got to join her local police department in Texas. And she came to New York and and she I met with her when she was here because she was part of her tour of the New York City Police Department was she went on some radio shows. And I was working with Joe Piscopo at the time and Joe had her on and she died shortly thereafter. And I'd say I almost break up every time I think about that little girl and especially when I see her picture and to think that John Cena has gone through this 650 times. It's extraordinary. And uh, I've I've tried to do a lot of work for the Make-A-Wish Foundation over the years. I've certainly contributed to the Make-A-Wish Foundation over the years. I think they're a great group, as are other wish-granting organizations that that fulfill a similar role. But for John Cena to fulfill 650 Make-A-Wish requests, that's extraordinary. And it's certainly commendable. Also, want to commend Rob Sterling. This is someone who should be more famous than John Cena. This guy is 60 years old. Okay? He just broke his own world record. You want to know the world record this 60-year-old man broke? Rob Sterling has been working out for more than 40 years. But he just started recently doing push-ups. Because injuries forced him to find a replacement for the bench press. So, he just broke the Guinness World Record for doing push-ups in 60 minutes. You know how many push-ups he did in an hour? Rob Sterling did 3,264 push-ups in a single hour. 
I don't know that I could do 3,264 push-ups in a lifetime. This guy did it in an hour at 60. I mean, that is incredible. And this guy is not a um, professional bodybuilder. He's an insurance agent. I'm just amazed at this. Regular guy, really into working out, doesn't do this professionally, not a professional athlete, 3,264 push-ups in a single hour? Wow. Um, I want to commend improv. Improv. You know, somebody mentioned Seinfeld and comedy in general and faulty towers as a way to relieve depression. Well, there is some evidence to show that actually performing improv can help mental health. And... um, After completing surveys about their individual experience with social anxiety, confidence in their social abilities, and tolerance for uncertainty, 339 students ages 8 to 12 started a 10-week-long improv program. And when they were asked about the same things after the program ended, the results revealed that the students experienced less social anxiety and increased tolerance for uncertainty. So at least when it comes to students... In the study authored by Peter Felsman, well, young people, improv can really help. I, I'm curious to see if the same thing would hold, hold true for adults. But until we know, I'm giving a commendation to improv, not just for entertainment purposes, but for mental health purposes. Let me commend the city of Charleston, South Carolina. They are known for many things. Nice beaches, some nice tourist attractions. But I really must give a commendation to Charleston, South Carolina, because they have been ranked as the best city in the country for outdoor weddings. That's right. The rankings of this study were based on eight separate categories. Quality of outdoor wedding venues, access to wedding planners, sunshine um and charleston was selected as the best city in the u.s for couples looking to have an outdoor wedding so if you're looking to get married outside consider charleston darren camp also the proud recipient of a commendation showing that sometimes it's better to be lucky than good but sometimes it's best to be both lucky and good Darren Camp is an Australian gold digger who turned up a stone weighing 10.1 pounds. 10.1 pound stone. More than half of which is gold. This is one of the largest gold nugget finds in recent times. They say the gold nugget that this amateur gold digger found is worth $160,000. Good for this guy. Good for you, Darren Camp. I'm sure that comes with a lot of waiting. You know, whenever I see a guy or a girl at a casino and they've won big money, they get a jackpot worth, you know, $70,000 or something like that, there are always people that walk by and they kind of snicker at that person. They say, oh. Can't believe he won. Can't believe she won. Oh, 
Why should they win? Why shouldn't I win? In almost every case, that is someone who has worked at at winning. And I know it's silly to equate gambling with gold digging, but it's not. Because they put a lot of money into that slot machine to hit that jackpot. And they deserve every penny of it. And this guy, Darren Camp, I guarantee you, for every $160,000 gold nugget that he's found, he spent one million times that amount of time looking and not finding anything. And this doesn't come without a lot of patience, without a lot of time, without a lot of hard work, and yes, with some luck. I'm, I'm happy for this guy. I want to commend Ellen Zhu. Ellen Zhu is a 17-year-old who has won $150,000 in in a science talent search for a remarkable way to diagnose pediatric heart disease. In the oldest and most prestigious young adult science competition in the nation, 17-year-old Ellen Zhu used a kind of AI design to... To, the, to design the first diagnosis test for a rare disease that struck her sister years ago. So with a personal sis, uh, story driving her, she managed an 85% rate of positive diagnoses with only a smartphone image. And that's extraordinary for any doctor or at any age. 17-year-old? Glad she's won some money. And finally, I want to give a commendation to... Kendall Cummings, you know, with all the wrestling talk we did last hour, this is a collegiate wrestler, a sophomore, NJCAA wrestler, and very strong, very brave, and he needed all that bravery because he decided he was not going to let a mama grizzly bear maul his friend to death. Last year, Cummings was out with his friends Brady Lowry, Gus Harrison, and Oren Jackson in the woods in Wyoming looking for shed antlers from elk, moose, mule, which along with being a fun way to pass the time in the woods, can also earn a college kid a few hundred dollars for a big pair of antlers. So they stumble upon a bear, a grizzly bear, probably weighs about 500 pounds. And he starts attacking his friends. And the old joke, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. This guy didn't run away from the bear. He used a quadruple leg takedown, which is a wrestling move, against the grizzly bear to get him off of his friend. And they, luckily, these kids escaped with minor injuries because this brave collegiate wrestler wrestled the bear and won. That's impressive. All right. Uh, That concludes this week's edition of Commendations. If you didn't make the list this time around, hopefully you will next week if you do something commendable. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Very excited about our uh, next guest. We're going to talk with Dr. Mark Hewitt all about the Zodiac serial killer. You're not going to want to miss this discussion. Believe me. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight. 
Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. I don't think there is a mystery that has more perplexed both authorities and the public over the last half century than the mystery of the Zodiac Killer. Well, if your memory is a little hazy of what exactly was happening back in the late 60s, early 70s, particularly in California... Let me play this for you. This is a news broadcast from 1978, 10 years after the Zodiac Killer first became known to the world. 1978 from ABC News. Listen to this. San Francisco was terrorized in the late 60s and early 70s by a man who called himself the Zodiac Killer. He claimed 37 murders. Police confirmed at least six. Four years ago, the killing stopped, and so did Zodiac's letter. Now there's another letter. For that, Tom Shell. San Francisco police displayed a blackboard with excerpts of the latest Zodiac letter at a news conference last night. Police are convinced it's authentic. Deputy San Francisco Police Chief Clem D'Amica said it's the 16th letter received from the Zodiac killer and the first since 1974. Letter number 16 has breathed new life into the investigation of at least six murders blamed on the Zodiac. Old files will be reviewed again. For the last nine years, the Zodiac investigation has been headed by homicide inspector David Tusky. I have always felt uh, a gut feeling that, that he was not dead and that he was out there somewhere and that he would communicate. I, I was always hoping that he would communicate and, and not commit an act. A letter I can handle. The latest letter from the Zodiac poses more questions than it answers. Questions like, why has he only communicated twice in the past nine years? Has he killed in that time? No clues in the latest letter. But more importantly, who is the Zodiac and where is he? Tom Shell, ABC News, San Francisco. The Zodiac Killer has been described as the most famous unsolved murder case in American history. It has been a fixture of popular culture and of public interest since the 1960s. You know, we eventually find everybody. Why can't we find this guy? Well, somebody that may have some of those answers is Dr. Mark Hewitt. He is an award-winning public speaker, a true crime author, and the writer of the acclaimed Zodiac Serial Killer series. Mark, it's great to have you on the radio. Thanks for joining me. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Frank. So, Mark, before um, before we get into your research and your work, which I'm very interested in, tell me, uh, tell the audience, really, about the official story of the Zodiac Killer, beyond what I just, uh, beyond the thumbnail sketch that I just gave, what exactly does the public record, what does history say about the Zodiac Killer that is publicly indisputed by anybody? Well, your introduction was excellent. Uh, it's, uh, It's a tremendous mystery that took place in California in the 60s and 70s. The Body toll of uh, canonical murders is at uh, five in four different attacks. Ironically, uh, the same body count as Jack the Ripper was given. Uh, 
but there are so many disputed details of the case that uh, even that number is not certain because there may have been murders that took place prior to the canonical five, and there may have been murders uh, following the canonical five. So it's uh, it's it, it, it's a mystery wrapped in a mystery. So it started in 1968. The first murders happened in outside of Vallejo, California, at a turnout off of Lake Herman Road. David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen were on their first date together. And during a six-minute window of opportunity, as they were parked uh, in a very darkened area, even today, 55 years later, it's uh, just as bleak and just as dark as it was then, uh, with very little traffic. But they were found at the end of that six-minute window, lying on the ground outside of their car, shot to death. You mentioned the police. Sorry, go ahead. Go, oh, the, the police couldn't solve it. And then uh, seven months later, in 4th of July, only about three miles away from there, another couple, Darlene Farron and Michael Majot, went to the Blue Rock Springs Park and were parking there. And somebody came along and, under the guise of being a police officer, opened fire on them and killed Darlene. She was uh, dead on arrival at the hospital. Um, Michael Majot miraculously survived. Hmm. And then a few months later, on the shores of Lake Berryessa, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were spending time together. And a costumed stranger approached them, pulled a knife, uh, pulled, a, pulled a gun on them, and spent time trying to calm them down, saying, all I want is your money, all I want is your car keys, my car is hot. He ended up not taking their money, not taking the car keys. And once he had them hogtied on the ground, he pulled out a long butcher-style knife and started stabbing them. Cecilia Shepard died two days later, and Brian Hartnell, again, another male, miraculously survived. Then exactly two weeks later, in the Presidio Heights district of San Francisco, Paul Stein, a cab driver who had been hailed by his passenger in the theater district of downtown San Francisco, was taken out to the Presidio Heights district and shot to death as he uh, parked the cab at the side of the road. And that is as much as we know for certain about the murders committed by the Zodiac serial killer. So the the five that are confirmed, um, it sounds like everybody except for the cab driver tends to fit the the same sort of a profile. Is that right? That is correct. And so there were questions as to why the cab driver, why a lone male, why downtown San Francisco? It seemed to be a, a radical change from his M.O., possibly because he was gunning for additional large city uh, publicity, or he was trying to prove to his detractors that, yes, he could kill a male when he wanted to. Um, we're, we're left to speculate. The... the the fact that he wrote letters is not in and of itself unusual. The son of Sam did something similar. Some other killers over the years have done similar things. Who did he write letters to and what did the letters say? He wrote as uh, many as 20 letters. There are a lot of disputed letters. Uh, at that time, it was such a huge story that there were literally hundreds of fake letters sent to various individuals and various police departments. Uh, but I, canonically, it's more like around 16 that have been agreed upon as uh, authentic Zodiac letters. 
They were sent to uh, news news uh, newspapers. They were sent to the police. They were sent to uh, one was sent to a victim, uh, a victim's father, um, and other other notable figures such as Melvin Belli, a high profile attorney in San Francisco at the time. The uh, you mentioned some were confirmed authentic, others were just claimed. Uh, how did they authenticate these letters? W- how would authorities or even newspaper editors know that a letter they got was really from the Zodiac killer and not from a prankster or a mentally ill person or or just someone else? Well, that's exactly it. That's that's the question that we struggle with even today. The state of California had the cases uh, and and unified them and oversaw the uh, the investigation into them, but they did use, utilize the uh, services of the FBI. And so FBI uh, handwriting specialists were uh, tasked to examine each one of the letters and to um, make a make a make a decision whether whether they were authentic zodiac letters or not. But even among experts within California and within the FBI, there were disagreements about which ones were authentic and which ones were not. I see. I see. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Mark Hewitt. If you're interested in learning more about the Zodiac Killer, you should check out his book. And uh, we're going to tell you uh, how you can get that in a moment. Mark, and uh, as far as you're concerned, well, let me actually begin with this. Why do we call this particular killer the Zodiac Killer? What's the significance of invoking astrological signs when describing pretty gruesome murders? The killer himself, in one of his early letters, gave himself that name. He began the letter with the ominous and what would later become iconic phrase, this is the Zodiac speaking. Well, it was such a disturbing phrase and developed such an uproar in the area that the killer appears to have latched onto it. And almost every subsequent letter began with that as a title, this is the Zodiac speaking. What exactly it meant? is a hotly debated topic because there doesn't seem to be much of a um, of a connection to astrology. Uh, it's been noted that uh, the word zodiac and the crosshair symbol, which the zodiac also used, occurred in, on a watch or on a, uh, a car that was uh, produced in, the, in Great Britain. But exactly why he chose that name um, remains a mystery. Okay, and as far as you're concerned, obviously the investigation wasn't successful because they never caught the person responsible for it. But how did the investigation go? How did law enforcement do in handling this investigation? Was the reason that there were no arrests because there was any sort of uh, inappropriate conduct or incompetence in the investigation? Or did they do everything that could have been done? That's also highly debated, uh, a hot topic. I, for one, believe that the police did a relatively good job of what they could do for the time period. They had very um, low-level forensics. A search of a, of a crime scene was basically looking around for shelves or footprints or tire tracks, and then after an hour or two, releasing it to the, uh, releasing the, the scene to the public. If the same events had happened today, the crime scenes would have been scoured for at least 24 hours, and they would be looking for hairs and uh, trace evidence, fibers, 
uh, and any any other information. It, remember, this is a time prior to computers, so there's no computing of, uh, there's no filing of fingerprints and there's no DNA. This is all, all pre-DNA, pre-computers. So um, it, they had a monumental task ahead of them. And I think they did a fairly decent job. You read the police reports and they did the follow-up uh, examinations and questions and uh, as best they could. The, uh, the public got involved by sending in tips, but that was kind of a two-edged sword because for every one good tip they got, if they did get any tips, they got 100 people calling up and turning in an enemy or a son-in-law or an ex-boyfriend saying he's the guy. So it was really a deluge of tips that the police got sure. more than uh, more than they could re- reliably handle. But just for the record, they never they never caught him. Did they make any arrests uh, of suspects in this case? They made a, an arrest of a couple who happened upon the couple who uh, was was shot at uh, Blue Rock Springs Park. Um, but that. Um, was kind of uh, on suspicion of murder, but, you know, they didn't have anything to do with it, and they were quickly cleared. And what sparked your interest in this case, Mark? My interest is the mystery of it, the psychology of it, the uh, complexity of it, and the fact that despite all of the cast-off evidence that the killer left at crime scenes and sent through letters, she was never caught. By all rights, he should have been caught with all that uh, all that he left behind. You mentioned the uh, the psychology of it. I think that's one of the things that a lot of people find so troubling about this. Do we know from the letters or anywhere else what the motive was for the Zodiac killer killing all these innocent people? Not clearly. There are suggestions of what a motive might be. It, it, possibly he was out to get attention. He may have uh, been a person who lived a very uh, drab, unexciting life, and uh, he was a person who was ineffectual, as most serial killers tend to be. And this was his opportunity to get some attention. You mentioned uh, the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. That's a close, uh, a close. Uh, crime spree that uh, to the serial killer and once David Berkowitz was arrested despite his letters and despite his poetry and great boasts he turned out to be a very ineffective uh, person looking for his moment in the limelight mm. so that may have been the, the, the killer's motive but also there tends to be in most serial killers a sexual component to what they're doing they twist violence and sexuality together cannot separate the two and for them, killing somebody or threatening to kill somebody uh, brings along with it a sexual thrill for them. All right. A million-dollar question. Let me ask you to answer the question which law enforcement has been unsuccessful in answering for more than a half a century. Who is or who do you believe is the Zodiac Killer? My research has pointed me towards Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber. When I first heard that idea that he was even considered as a suspect in the Zodiac serial killing case, I thought it was preposterous. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was the dumbest suggestion ever until I began to look into the life of Theodore Kaczynski. 
Um, Ted Kaczynski was a professor, mathematics professor at UC Berkeley from 1967 to 1969. The first murder happened during the Christmas of his final year of being a teacher. One month later, he resigned from his position. His final day at work was June the 30th, 1969. Four days later, the second attack of the Zodiac serial killer happened. The two years following Ted Kaczynski's time as a Berkeley professor, are, he is mostly unaccounted for. He was not working except for a couple periods, maybe, maybe one or two periods of a couple months at the most. He used his parents' address as Lom in Lombard, Illinois, as his home address at that time, but he was not permanently affixed to that address. And during those same two years, the bulk of the Zodiac murders and the bulk of the Zodiac letters took place. And then following Ted Kaczynski's move to Montana to build his cabin and start his work as the Unabomber, he, uh, only a single Zodiac letter was sent. Now, that seems to make uh, a lot of sense. He's in Northern California at the time that these murders are taking place. He clearly has shown a willingness to be violent after that. And um, the evidence that you just laid out makes a lot of sense to me. And there's a bunch of other things that you just didn't mention, but you've covered before. Their shared interest in cryptography, uh, the fact that he wanted the press to publish his writings, which is very consistent with what he did with the manifesto. And law enforcement did indeed investigate uh, the connections of Ted Kaczynski to the Zodiac killings. But they found, both the FBI and the San Francisco Police Department, that it was not him based on fingerprint and handwriting comparisons and by his absence from California on certain dates, which they say was dates that known Zodiac activity have taken place. What do you say uh, to that, Mark? The uh, the handwriting, the fingerprints, and the absence from California on certain dates. What you have said I have heard before, obviously. It has been uh, posted on the Internet. Neither the FBI nor the SFPD has come out and cleared Ted Kaczynski. Nobody has said... It couldn't be him. It's not him, uh, except for individuals. I would say that uh, the, the uh, police would also confess and also admit that none of the fingerprints that they have collected in the case is absolutely um, without question from the Zodiac serial killer. They may not have any fingerprints from the Zodiac. Um, the, the claim that Ted Kaczynski was somewhere else during the commission of certain crimes or letters that were sent is demonstrably false. I think what people have said is, oh, he was living in Lombard, Illinois, following his time at Berkeley. So he wasn't in Northern California when the letters were sent and when some of the murders were committed. Well, that's not true. Ted did not stay in Lombard, Illinois. His mother reported numerous trips that Ted took, um, unexpected and un, un uh, unannounced trips where he would just disappear from his home for a while. So it is entirely plausible that he spent time back on the West Coast in a place that he was very familiar with during that during those two years. The um, uh, Ted Kaczynski is still in, still alive. Obviously, he's in um, 
federal prison serving eight consecutive life sentences right now. His brother, David, has also been very vocal. He's uh, described his relationship with his brother publicly. He's become sort of an advocate on various criminal justice issues. I'm curious if you've sought an audience with either Ted or David and what, if anything, those efforts resulted in. I've written to both of them. My younger brother David did not reply to my letter sent to him. I began a correspondence with uh, Ted for about two years. So you actually wrote and corresponded with the Unabomber himself for two years? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. I I was a little bit mischievous in contacting him. I told him that I was very interested in his manifesto and that it had moved something within me. And I was looking to do something with my feelings toward the manifesto and what would he recommend I do? Well, he uh, lapped up that uh, that offer as a sociopathic serial killer would and got very excited that he could dominate and manipulate me. And so we entered into a bit of a manipulation dance where we were each trying to manipulate the other person. And I got a handful of letters from him. I think it was five or six of them. Those I found interesting and and helpful for my research because a lot of the phrases that he used in the letters sounded to me a lot like phrases that uh, I had read in Zodiac letters. And then uh, a friend of his apparently did a Google search on my name and found out that I was uh, involved in editing a journal Mm. on the Zodiac serial killer and let Ted know. And then I got a nasty letter from Ted and that nasty letter, the final letter I ever received from him, sounded an awful lot like the final letter that um, the Zodiac sent to the, the, the press, the, uh, the infamous um, um, uh, Mikado letter. I, I'm sorry, the... Um, well, the, the particular name of that letter doesn't necessarily make, make uh, a difference, this, but it was his final letter and it had some similarities to the final letter you received. Very interesting. Talking with Mark Hewitt. By the way, Mark, we're just scratching the surface on this. If people are interested in learning more um, based on what your research has shown and your books, what's the best book for them to start with and what's the best place for them to get it? Well, the... Um... I've published three books. The uh, Zodiac Serial Killer series is a trilogy of three books. The first book has been acclaimed as the most detailed and most accurate treatment of the case with simply the details of the attacks, the letters, the effects that it had on the public and how the police went about their investigation. That's hunted the Zodiac murders, and I would recommend that if somebody was interested in getting to know the nuts and bolts of the case in in great uh, granularity. That book, as all of my books, are available, as they say, wherever books can be found. Um, If your bookstore doesn't have it, they can order it for you. It's uh, available on Amazon, and if money is an issue, please go to your library, and you can request it from them, and if they don't have it, they'll get it for you. That's good advice. We've been talking with Mark Hewitt. You could search him on Amazon or elsewhere at H-E-W. I uh, T T Mark, um, do you do you believe that there's a possibility there could have been multiple killers? It's quite unlikely. It's a theory that most people gravitate toward when they first look into the case because uh, there, there's so many moving parts to the case. 
I came to the conclusion that it was a single individual based on the fact that the psychology of an individual who would say the things that he said and do the things that he did would have a very difficult time working with somebody else. Um, coupled with the fact that teen serial killers, and there have been a few in history that have been caught and have been identified, tend not to write letters to the police and the press wow. for the simple reason that they have each other to deal with. They right. don't they don't need to reach out beyond themselves. Well, that's that's a great point. Hey, what are you hoping is the next step in this investigation and potentially getting law enforcement to look at Ted Kaczynski as the Zodiac killer again? I don't know. The, the police um, have a lot of interest in looking into Ted Kaczynski at this point, unless something else came along. I my My greatest dream is that the army of Zodiac researchers, the Zodiologists who are found throughout the world, some who have never even visited California before, I will continue to look into the case and dig deeper and deeper into the details, looking at a variety of suspects. And it's my hope that a future technology will come along to aid the investigation. Um, I'm looking at uh, artificial intelligence most recently. Um, for some of the ways in which uh, these bots uh, give them a couple of decades worth of, uh, of growth from where they are right now, they may be able to look at the letters in great detail and compare them to the breadth of every uh, available piece of literature that's uh, available on the Internet. Yeah, no, that's, um, that is cause for optimism for the future. Mark, great conversation. I'd love to have you back sometime soon, and we could talk about your uh, work on the Manson murders and Charles Manson specifically. Absolutely. Uh, Mark Hewitt, like thank you very much. Check out his website, Dr. Hewitt, Dr. spelled out, drhewitt.com, uh, and you can check out this award-winning Zodiac Murder Series. Really interesting stuff. I find it is anyway. You want to comment, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. All right, we're just getting started. A lot more to go. Uh, we'll discuss something more upbeat. How about some Easter recipes? 800-848-9222. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Pray, 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 pray,
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Is there a more appropriate way to start the final hour of our show as we go into the first radio day of Holy Week than with this song? Absolutely. Don't you feel a little bit more spiritual just listening to it? So yesterday, as I was doing some research on serial killers and the in general and the Zodiac killer specifically, you know, you go down these rabbit holes. I don't know if this is what you do when you research things, but when I research something, I go down these rabbit holes and I could very easily just get lost. I, I could spend if I didn't have responsibilities and the need to sleep and eat and things like that. No exaggeration, I could spend the whole day just researching on the Internet and in books. And it's it's funny. There was a book. I have a mammoth book collection. And there's a book on my shelf the other day that I haven't read. Now, I've read most of the books that I have. Actually, now that might not be true because I'm accumulating books at a much faster pace than I'm reading them. So that may not be true. But there was a book on my shelf, and I'm curious about all of them, even the ones that I haven't read yet. And it just catches my eye. And my wife sees that I'm now transfixed on this book. And whatever, it catches my eye, and I turn to a, a section in the book. It's a nonfiction book. It's not important which one. And I start reading it. And my wife sees I'm starting to read it with great interest. And she says, what are you, what are you looking for? I said, nothing, which was true. But there was just something that struck my interest. And then uh, I had to tend to my son. Otherwise, that would have led me down a whole rabbit hole. I have a friend like this, and I think we're kindred spirits in a lot of ways, except he's a single guy, doesn't really have a job. He will go for six, seven, eight hours straight just researching on the Internet and looking at one thing. And you read one article, read one article, it leads to another and another and another. And you could very easily pass the whole day. If I didn't have a job and I didn't have a family, this is what I would spend the whole day doing, just researching one thing after another. And the more complex an issue is and the more history there is about an issue, the more links there are in that chain, if that makes sense. I don't know if you get this way. Maybe not everyone's as obsessive as me. They look up what they want to look up. They get their answer and they move on. I obsess. So anyway, I was reading all this serial killer stuff yesterday. Because of the preparation for the Zodiac Killer discussion. And then that leads naturally to a whole discussion about David Berkowitz and um, the son of Sam, who's still alive, by the way, living right here in New York. And he's a changed man now, born again Christian. But um, I end up reading a whole bunch of David Berkowitz's letters that he wrote for the son of Sam his letter. I'm not going to read you this whole thing, but here are two sentences. Maybe, yeah, two sentences. This is how one of his letters ends. Well, almost ends. This is kind of the penultimate paragraph. To the people of Queens, I love you, and I want to wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back to be interred as bang, 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 bang. Uh, 
yours in murder, Mr. Monster. Now, I'm just thinking about this letter. To think that he would say, I mean, I mean, you can't ascribe rational thought to a demented serial killer. But to think that he would send this around Easter and invoke the fact that it's Easter and invoke God bless you. And then in the next sentence to be writing about murder. And I'm just picturing what it must have been like in the mid to late 70s when people are reading about this letter in the newspaper. And they're worrying about their Easter celebrations. And all I could think is, what a total downer that must have been. That must have been so incredibly depressing to read that as you're getting ready for Easter. Because as I'm getting ready for Easter, I'm not here Friday, by the way. I'm taking off for the Easter holiday uh, and as for Good Friday. But uh, I'm told Curtis Slewa will be here. So all of you that call me and ask, why does Curtis do this or why does Curtis do that? Call him on Friday. Okay. No need to call me. Call him on Friday. and I'm sure he can answer your questions. But anyway, I thought to myself, you know, look, I'm going into the Easter holiday. And so many of the subjects that we end up talking about on the radio or that you end up seeing on television or reading the newspapers, they're all so depressing. If it's not serial killers, it's stolen elections. If it's not stolen elections, it's indicted presidents. If it's not indicted presidents, it's mass shootings. If it's not mass shootings, it's global warming. If it's not global warming, it's scandals in the royal family. You you get what I'm saying? If it's not uh, scandals in the royal family, it's deadly tornadoes. You get what I'm saying? It, It can be very depressing. And not at all the kind of thing that is uplifting going into Easter, which even if you're secular, and look, I believe in God, I am a, I consider myself a Christian, but I am far from a holy roller. I am a very secular guy. But I still love Easter, even though it's a religious holiday and should be first and foremost about celebrating religion. I still love um, Easter for the occasion to get together with family and in some cases friends. And throughout the course of my life, there have been several traditional Easter dishes that have always been a staple in our Easter celebrations. This year is a little different because uh, a lot of the folks in our family are going out to a restaurant so, which is one of the things that we've done the last few years. But in the years where we would go to someone's house, there were all these dishes that were a staple. Obviously, my family happens to be of Italian descent. And so I think a lot of the Easter traditions that I've observed all happen to be kind of in keeping with that Italian culinary tradition. But I thought it might be fun to take a little bit of a break from talking about indictments and serial killers and mass shootings and wars in Russia and this and that, to ask you what your favorite traditional Easter dish is to make or to consume. Because I'm sure a lot of you are going to be cooking this weekend. I'm sure a lot of you are going to be getting ready to visit family 
to visit friends. A lot of you are probably hosting family and friends. And you're putting together the menu. And I'm curious, particularly if you're from a tradition that is not Italian. What's a staple in your Easter menu? Additionally, I'd love to give people that are like me who don't cook, at least not in any way that's noteworthy, people like me who don't cook and end up as a guest in a lot of places, and they want to bring a traditional Easter meal, what do they bring? You think about Thanksgiving, right? We all know the Thanksgiving foods. You got turkey, you got mashed potatoes, you got, uh, depending on what kind of tradition you come from, maybe turnips, maybe cranberry sauce. That's all a typical Thanksgiving meal. You think about Christmas Eve, you think of the Feast of the Seven Fishes. You think about uh, Christmas Day, you think about uh, goose, right, or a ham. So the what you think about when it comes to Easter, the two dishes that have always been at every Easter that I've ever been to have been Easter bread, where you know it's it's sort of a bread a bread with colored Easter eggs in the bread itself, which is a lot of fun. It's not just festive and delicious. But it's it's kind of neat. Everyone gets a kick out of the egg, and then you have a nice hard-boiled egg in the bread. That's always a lot of fun. And the other one is uh, is pizza rustica, uh, which, if um, you're not familiar with it, is they also call it Easter pie. It's um, basically it's uh, it, it's basically a pie uh, with meat in it, kind of. And I, I think it has different names in different places. It's a it's a cake that's got you know cheese in it, uh, sometimes ham, all sorts of all sorts of other things that are in it. Beyond that, what else do you have? Artichokes was always big in our house. So um, and then I was researching some non ethnic Easter traditions, and the two most common recipes that I saw were lamb and ham. I'll be honest, I I am I was never fond of lamb. I was never fond of lamb. But um different strokes for different folks, right? I guess that's part of what the holidays are about is you eat food that you're not likely to enjoy just because that's the thing that you do on that holiday. So, um what is your favorite traditional Easter dish? What's a recommendation for something that someone can make or purchase? If they're going to someone else's house, and we'll give you extra points if it's easy to make. 800-848-9222. And so no one thinks that we're biased only towards Gentiles. If you want to submit a favorite Passover traditional meal as well, you can go ahead and do that. Passover, obviously, it's a different ball game because of the unleavened bread and the uh, restrictions in terms of kosher food, even with people that don't necessarily typically keep a kosher household. All of a sudden, uh, Passover comes around and they're eating the matzah. I had some very good matzah in my day. 800-848-9222, uh, your favorite traditional Easter meal, uh, some advice on what people can make or bring, and um, you can include Passover in that as well. And there's two other pieces of food-related news that I'll 
that I'll mention, but a bunch of people have been patiently holding. Let me get to as many of them as I can. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, uh, Frank. Hey, I I was almost a victim of the New York Zodiac. You remember the New York Zodiac? He used to kill his victims and put a the Zodiac sign on on them, like or near the body. And uh, he was a Spanish guy from yeah, Brooklyn. Uh, Heriberto Sida. Yeah, is well that whoever. Yeah, I didn't get his name really, but anyway, I was at the ball field over here on Bedford Park, across the way from Lehman College, and there were these weeds that were growing up on the hill, like not in the park. And I just you get down there, believe it or not, for bird watching. There's, you can see a lot of birds down there flying around. I saw a big woodpecker one time. Anyway, in the trees, I used to hear, I heard them pecking on the on the bark. But anyway, to make a, make a long story short, it was a hot day. I used to work the midnight shift. So I said, well, I'll go sit there for a while. It was hot as all get out. And then going back over this bridge where they kept the subway cars underneath, all of us, this guy comes out of the weeds. He's hiding in the weeds like a bad movie. And he starts following me over the bridge. It's a little bridge. Anyway, halfway over the bridge, uh, fortunately, I had bought these uh, cheap caps from a 99-cent store. And it was, uh, it said the force on it. It was a movie promotion, sure, uh, had of, obviously. So anyway, something told me, take the regular cap I had off and put this hat on. And the guy was getting close to me. He must have pulled his gun out. And I turned, looked at him. He saw the force and he went back to the woods. He went back to the, like the other side. Where the college was. Well, how do you know it was him, Tom? Now, wait a minute now. Here's what happened. About six months later, this was in the summer, so about six months, it was around December, and uh, and he, he, over there, I read about him in the newspaper, too. Uh, his, uh, his own sister and him had an argument. He turned around, he shot his own sister in the house and where they lived in Brooklyn, and when the cops came... And you recognize him as the same guy that was following you? Yeah. Wow. They, uh, this, this guy, he used to put the, the Zodiac sign... No, no, absolutely, yeah, this was uh, in the he 90s. Put the, he put uh, the symbol on when he signed his name... And the cops said we got the Zodiac, New York Zodiac. Right. He's in jail, too. Yeah. No, no, I should hope so. You kill free people, you better be. I'm glad you survived that, uh, Tom. Way to have your wits about you. 800-848-9222. But on to lighter pursuits. Give me your favorite Easter dish, your favorite Easter meal. If you're, someone's going somewhere this weekend, what should they bring? If you're hosting, what are you making? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I'm specifically very interested in different ethnic traditions and what what goes with a typical blank household. 
Uh, someone just messaged me. Frank, also Italian cheesecake always good goes good with everything. You can't go wrong bringing an Italian cheesecake, the Sicilian kind, to someone's house. I really like Italian cheesecake. I prefer it. And I like regular American cheesecake, too. But I prefer it to the American cheesecake. You know, I like American cheesecake because I like cream cheese. But I prefer the Italian because I prefer rigotte to cream cheese. And it's not as sweet. It's just sweet enough to be satisfying. But you don't get that feeling of that it's so rich that you want to gag. By the way, speaking of uh, food... I don't know if you eat meatballs, but I'm not joking about this. A mammoth meatball. You know the the animals, the extinct animal, the woolly mammoth? A mammoth meatball has been created by a cultivated meat company resurrecting the flesh of these long extinct animals. This is not a joke. But this project aims to demonstrate the potential of meat grown from cells without the slaughter of animals and to highlight the link between large-scale livestock production and the destruction of wildlife and the climate crisis. So the mammoth meatball was produced by VOW, an Australian company which is taking a different approach to cultured meat. There are all sorts of companies working on lab-grown replacements for conventional meat, chicken, pork, beef. But VOW is aiming to mix and match cells from unconventional species to create new kinds of meat. They've already investigated the potential of more than 50 species, alpaca, buffalo, crocodile, kangaroo. By the way, I, um, I did research. You can get camel milk on Amazon, but you can't get sheep's milk. And they say camel milk might be one of the closest things to, to human milk ever. I was looking through all these different types of animals. Well, that's neither here nor there. But this is, the first cultivated meat to be sold to diners will be Japanese quail, which the company expects is going to be in restaurants in Singapore. So no one has tasted this mammoth meatball. They're afraid to give it to anyone because no one has ever eaten a mammoth that's alive. So they don't know how a human stomach would react to this. And they don't want to make anyone sick or maybe even kill them. But they did this. And you know what? Speaking of this lab-grown meat, which, mark my words, three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, this is all you're going to be hearing about. This is going to be the next veggie burger, the next Beyond Burger, and then some. Lab-grown meat. Have you heard what's happened, though, now? And I I don't agree with this. Speaking of Italy, Italy's current government, the right-wing government led by Prime Minister Maloney, they are backing a bill that would ban lab-grown meat and other synthetic food, highlighting Italian food heritage and health protection. So if the proposals go through... Breaking the ban, meaning selling or serving lab-grown meat, would attract a fine of up to 53, excuse me, 60,000 euros. That's about, that's about uh, $68,000. And, 
I understand they're trying to protect their food traditions. This is going a little far, no? Not even to allow people the option of buying lab-grown meat? You don't want to buy it, don't buy it. I'm sure there's plenty of people that will prefer real meat anyway, or meat from an animal. But why give folks the option, uh, the, why not give them the option, if they want to buy this, to buy it? So that's what Italy has done. I have a big problem with that. 800-848-9222. would love to hear your uh, staples around your Easter table. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi, dear Frank. Uh, wishing you a happy Easter ahead of time. Thank you. Um, my, my family always had ham on Easter. What, what kind of ham? ham? What kind of ham? Baked ham. Oh, a baked ham. Yeah. And we had various vegetables, spring vegetables, you know, that are abundant at that time. And I wanted to mention that I had that um, that Easter cake with the eggs in it. Right, Easter bread. Bakery. Easter bread, right. Yeah, Easter bread, right. Um, there was a bakery near where we lived, and every holiday they sold certain things that were appropriate for that holiday. And I actually enjoyed that. We used to get that, my family and I. Yeah, no, it's delicious. It's absolutely delicious. I can't imagine what it's like in terms of egg prices these days, but uh, it's it's great if you're bringing something somewhere. And um, I think that's great. You know what my grandmother always used to make? And I forgot about this until just now. And I don't know if this was really an Easter tradition or just something that in our family became an Easter tradition. She would make... Every Easter, pineapple, and I love this. This was great. Pineapple in green jello, in in green jello gelatin, and it was delicious. And for some reason, we'd go to her house every Easter. That was always on the table. And um, even after she passed away about, uh, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we've continued when we have Easter somewhere to serve that pineapple in the green jello. 800-848-9222. Ralph is in New Jersey. Hello, Ralph. Well, this, oh, this uh, if I can, uh, you know, uh, have uh, a paella, a pasta, a porchita, and a tapa, uh, I, I think that would make the day for me. Okay, paella. Okay. Paella, right. All right, paella, I'm going to disconnect pasta. you, Ralph, just because you left your phone on and it's annoying to hear myself back. All the people that say I'm annoying, you're right. I just got a little sample of that. 800-848-9222. Leo is on the Upper East Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Uh, I didn't have it for years. Obviously, my mother passed away. But uh, all my early years, we was having uh, on Easter a rabbit, a rabbit on white. And I didn't know it's some kind of tradition on the, on the northern Czech, but when I got uh, married, uh, my father-in-law was also killing on Easter always rabbits. So, you know, I didn't know that uh, that people actually eat rabbit on on Easter. I, I didn't know that. I've never heard of that. I mean, obviously, Easter's got such an association with rabbits and bunnies, but you figure maybe yeah. because it's his holiday, they wouldn't eat him. But uh, that's interesting. So you guys always ate rabbit. Yeah, rabbit on wine. 
Interesting. Okay. Thank you, Leo. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jerry is in New Jersey. Hello, Jerry. Yeah, hi, Frank. Uh, it's a little bit different topic. I wanted to go back to when you were hearing you earlier tonight. You were saying that you thought that uh, Trump should have cameras in the courtroom for no, his trial, No, I right? think everybody should have cameras in the courtroom. But, yes, especially the first, uh, the first felony indictment of a former president. Yes. Okay, now you're also saying that you're going to write a letter asking for this? Yes. Okay, can you include in that letter also as an alternative to, and as something very important, and I think that uh, the media is mostly going to be against the idea, I'm going to say, but I think you will be for it. They're trying to put, and it looks like the prosecutor wants a gag order on Trump, so he can't speak to the public about the case. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm I'm going to stay focused on the camera issue, but you're welcome to write your own letter. But I, I would imagine, you know, that's an issue that the defense is going to be, you know, uh, issuing, you know, their own written opinions about it. But, you know, and, and thank you for the call, Jerry. If you're a Trump fan, a, a gag order is not the worst thing for Trump. Trump's own attorney general, Bill Barr, said this on Fox News yesterday. This was about the issue of uh, of testifying. Generally, I think it's a bad idea to go on the stand, and I think it's a particularly bad idea for Trump because he lacks all self-control, and uh, it'll be very difficult to prepare him and, and keep him uh, testifying in a prudent fashion. Now, putting the testimony issue aside, and again, I don't want to go down to legal strategy before we even know what the charges are, but Trump is his own worst enemy. You know, the fact that Trump had such a good week the week before last, such a good week. He's up in the polls. All his opponents are rallying to his defense. The um, the He's doing well with the fundraising, raises all sorts of money, a quarter of it from new donors who hadn't donated in the last two campaigns. He was having such a good week. He was being viewed as statesmanlike. Fox News had him back for the first time. And then what does he do? He shows a a um he shows a photo of a baseball bat and Alvin Bragg. Now he did delete it, but that is not at all something that helped him. That only that that so Again, there won't be a gag order for the reasons the lawyers we spoke to on Friday went into. But I think if there were to be a gag order, in a lot of ways, that'd be the best thing for Trump. Right now, this weekend, he was insulting the judge. So far, every lawyer that I've spoken to that's ever appeared before this judge says this judge is pretty fair. The lawyer that represented Alan Weisselberg says this judge is fair. Other judges that I know that have worked with this guy, they say, they say this judge is fair. And yet Trump is going out of his way to attack the judge. It's how does that th- how does that help him? So whatever, I'm not I'm, I'm keeping my letter only on the issue of cameras in the courtroom. That's it. 800-848-9222. Sophia is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sophia. Good morning, Frank. Morning. How are you? Great. Great. So I just want to say one thing. Every time, every picture I see of that baby, that Carmine, he gets more beautiful with every picture you post. God bless him. I was looking at the one with with the, um, he was reading uh, uh, Dominic's book. Anyway, 
two staples that I don't care what else is on the table. If there's no minestra soup on the table, it's not a holiday for me. The Italian minestra soup, you got to have that. Now, I, I don't know that I'm up on that. Is that like minestrone? No, minestrone is different. It's got the minestrone has pasta, beans. Sure. Minestra is the greens, you know, ashcarola with uh, the, uh, okay. the chigori, the chicory. And it's like a stacciatella. Some people put um, some people put tortellini. I like it without the tortellini. That and the grain pie. How could you miss the grain ah, pie? Ah, the grain pie. The grain yes, pie, the grain that. pie. That's uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yep. You prefer the uh, the grain pie to the uh, pizza rustica? Absolutely. Well, it's two different things. Right. The pizza rustica is a, save, uh, is a you savory know savory sweet. and yeah. the, right, right. Two different things. But I'm not crazy for the pizza rustica. It's a little salty for me. I know. Me too. I, but you yeah. know, you got to have it anyway. You know, that's a little the thing. Pe- a little slight. There's a bakery in Staten Island that makes it out of this world. I wish I remembered that my nephew's friend's bakery. Out of better than any store bought rustica pie I've ever had. Um, and that's it. I mean, you can't do Easter without the uh, without the minestra and the and the grain pie, and that's all I need. Everything else is peripheral. Good stuff, Sophia. Keep in touch. I'm yeah. glad you're doing well. It's nice to hear from you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Johnny is in Baltimore. Hello, Johnny. Hey, good morning, Frank. Uh, hope you and your family have a beautiful Easter. Thank you. When I was a kid, we would go over to my father's house, my nonna's house, and. Little Italy in Baltimore, and she would make her normal Italian pasta and gravy, but she would also make this beautiful roasted chicken with uh, roasted potatoes, rosemary, lemon, garlic, and it was so good. And then my uncle Roberto would go up the street to this Italian bakery, and he would get this rum cake. It was an Italian rum cake. Oh, it was so good, Frank. We would have that. And pignoli cookies. There you go, pignolis. That was a staple in our house as as well. It still is. Liz is in Manhattan. Hello, Liz. Hi. Uh, I was married to a Lebanese, and uh, you would fast first, and then you'd have a soaked apricots uh, to cleanse your colon, and uh, then you would only eat... Uh, uh, vegetarian for a while. What was the apricot soaked in? Water. Really? Huh. Yeah. And you would eat that every Easter? Uh, you eat that every Easter, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I learned something. This is exactly why we do this uh, segment. See the exchange of cultures? See, this is a walking culinary cultural exchange program. No man has uh, brought more foods to more people than Columbus uh, or since Columbus. Uh, Steve's in New Jersey. What do you have for us, Steve? Hey, how you doing? I'm well, thanks. Uh, All right, Steve, turn your radio off. We'll come back to you. Brandon's in New Jersey. Hello. Hey, Frank. Uh, I don't know if you're buying eggs to color with um, Carmine, but... Potatoes. You know, you got all those... Huh? We're going potatoes, Easter potatoes. Oh, uh, okay. Cheaper option. All right. Well, I was going to say deviled eggs is something to bring, but I guess that. Oh, that's that not bad. Out. You know, and people do do that. You know, uh, that is that's a great suggestion, and it's not hard. That's it. That's no. a good one. It's a great recipe that's delicious, and that is not difficult. Even a layman like me can make. It. I love that suggestion, Brandon. Well done. Have a happy Easter. We'll try Steve in New Jersey again. Hello. Hello, Frank. How you doing? I'm great. Um, we used to have 
I'm Italian, Irish, and Polish, but we used to have lumpkies, pigs in a blanket, ham, and potatoes, and lasagna, and turkey. So I would have all different uh, ethnic, you know, from my family. And, uh, hey, you miss it. You miss so all then, the pies. Then, well, why don't you keep pie, doing it? Cherry pie, whatever. Well, why don't, you anyway, keep, that's it. why don't you keep doing it and keep those traditions alive? Well, uh... I just lost my brother this past oh, week. Oh, gee, I'm and, sorry. And we were like a year a year apart, so I don't know. I just uh, it took ten years for him to to go up to the big big leagues, but uh, I don't know. I uh, it's been a while since I had a family dinner, so that's it. Anyway, have a good Easter. Hey, right? you too, Steve. I hope uh, I hope you find somebody that you can have some family dinners with. I hate to hear that. I absolutely hate to hear that. All right. We're going to uh, give you, those of you that are hold, uh, holding, Janet, Allen, Larry, I'll try and get to you after the $1,000 minute. But for the rest of you, if you want an opportunity to win $1,000, you can be the seventh caller uh, to 800-848-9222. You can call right now, 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, we'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that, you'll be $1,000 richer. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. With all the frills upon her, you'll be the grandest lady in the Easter parade. I'll be all in clover, and when they look you over, I'll be the proudest fellow. In the Easter Parade On the Avenue Fifth Avenue The photographers will snap us And you'll find that you're In the road to gravure I could write a song. The great Bing Crosby singing of the Easter, Easter Parade. Butter. You know, Ellen just sent me an SMS text message, and, and you can do so as well at 8168-Morano. And uh, she says on the pass she's Jewish, on the Passover meal front, we always have gefilte fish and a stuffing made with matzo meal and ground carrots and sponge cake. Now, obviously, I've been to quite a few Passover seders, And I love Passover as a culinary holiday. I love gefilte fish. I could eat gefilte fish all day long. And I love so many different types of gefilte fish. I love the homemade. I love the kind that you get down at Russ and Daughters. I love the kind that you even get from the the grocery store. And then there's very conflicting views on how to handle the horseradish. I like the beet horseradish myself, but honestly, I love all of them. 
Now I have to talk to my wife, make sure we're invited somewhere for Passover this year. So because now I have a hankering for gefilte fish. All right. Uh, you will be able to afford quite a few gefilte fish with a thousand clams if you're the winner of The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Appreciate that. Let us say hello to Dave in Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. How's it going? It's uh, it's going well, Dave. Congratulations on the opportunity to win some money. I know you're a regular uh, listener, so I know you know what to do here, right? I know what to do. Okay. Um, you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Okay. Let me set my timer here. All right. What month is it? April. What Christian holiday takes place on Sunday? Easter. In Japanese cuisine, what is raw fish called? Sushi. What founding father, known as the father of the Constitution, was the fourth president of the United States? Oh, my God. Let me see here. Washington. No, it's not him. Uh, Monroe. Ah, no, I'm sorry. It is a James, but it is James Madison. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to put you on hold, Dave. We're going to give you a consolation prize. Thank you. See, I, w- I thought for sure Dave was going to get that because he's a regular listener and regular caller. And we've had James Madison as the fourth answer of our quiz for a week straight. It's always James Madison. So if you call tomorrow and you play in the game tomorrow, the fourth answer will be James Madison. That's your clue. It's more than a clue. Just listen to what I just said. He was close, though. He was with another James. All right, 800-848-9222. Hey, we were talking before, um, and people were calling in about this, on the uh, on the issue of putting the cameras in the courtroom for President Trump's trial, if it goes to trial. And I do think that there's a chance that this could be dismissed. But um, State Senator Brad Hoyleman Siegel was doing a press conference yesterday. He's introducing legislation that would have cameras in the courtroom. New York is just one of two states in the entire country that bans audiovisual recording of trials. The case will reverberate through our politics and our democracy for generations. We cannot know the outcome of this case, but the public has the right to witness this moment in history. I got to tell you, I completely agree with him. Absolutely agree with him. And um, I'm sure, well, I've said enough. Larry in Brooklyn has been holding for a while. Hello, Larry. Larry? Did Larry fall asleep on us again? I think he did. See, I have to say, his snoring situation does sound a lot better, though. Larry. Wake up! 
Oh, no, see. Hello. That's the snore that we're more used to. Wake up. All right, we'll, we'll leave Larry on uh, on on the line there in case he decides to wake up. We don't want to. Because last time we went to him, he was great. He knew exactly what he was saying, knew exactly why he was calling. So we'll see what happens when he comes to. Hey, you know whose birthday it is today? It is the birthday of our own Emily Pankow, the uh, chief legal counsel, our general counsel at Red Apple Media, and someone who's often a night owl. It's uh, her birthday today, so happy birthday, Emily. I hope all of your wishes come true today, and always. She's a, a great person and a very good lawyer, a very tough lawyer, too. Also, it is the birthday of uh, another attorney. You might see him on CNN a lot these days. You know, I invited this guy to participate in our legal panel on Friday, and he didn't get back to me. Now, that's fine. I figure maybe he's busy, maybe he's asleep. And then, at the very time that we're on, he's on CNN. Live. Ellie Honig. So it's Ellie Honig, who I got to know when he was a prosecutor, and now he's a legal analyst and attorney. Does a pretty good job on TV, actually, and uh, is more right than he is wrong when it comes to his analysis of the law. Not when it comes to politics, but when it comes to his analysis of the law, in my opinion. Not that I'm a lawyer, and I'm sure Ellie Honig, who went to a big fancy law school, doesn't need to be critiqued by, by me at all. All right, 800-848-9222. want to remind you, if you ever miss the show, listen to the podcast. Listen to the podcast. You can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com, or you can just search The Other Side of Midnight on any podcast app, any podcast app. Also, you should join our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. I have some photos of me at the uh, Blue Lives Matter event on uh, on Saturday. I was hanging out with uh, Councilmember Joe Borelli, Councilmember Vicky Palladino, and all the not all, but a few of the knuckleheads on my page are taking issue with my wardrobe. One guy writes, "Looking good, but get a stylist." All right, no one gal. Thank you, Grace. I appreciate it. I'd love to see what you were wearing Saturday night. I'd be happy to compare wardrobes. With you, uh, another person writes uh, when, uh, on the same suit-tie combo. They wrote, um, uh, uh, basically, uh, I, I, don't, I can't find it now, but basically they wrote that, uh, that shirt. Uh, oh, Frank, don't get any more suits with that pattern, nor paired with that tie. Well, thank you, Diana. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Diana. Apparently, the the ladies did not like my wardrobe on Saturday. You know what? That's my style. I may start doing like a Dominic Carter and wear a suit here every day. I probably won't, but I may. I may do that. So um, it does does put you in a more professional atmosphere. Joe Franklin always did that. He always wore a shirt and tie whenever he was on the radio. You know who else did that? John A. Gambling. John A. Gambling, not John R. John R. didn't even wear shoes half the time when he was doing his radio show. But John A. Gambling, always, just like Joe Franklin, always wore a a uh, shirt and tie. Well, anyway, happy birthday to uh, our very own Emily Pankow. 
let me say hello to Janet in New Jersey. Hello, Janet. Good morning. Morning. I just want to say, when you had mentioned the photographs of um, how stupid Trump was, you didn't use the word stupid, about having the picture of the bat. Dick Morris on his radio show, not this weekend, last weekend, said that was a put-together photograph. And he said if everybody noticed it was only in one newspaper and they were going to do something about it, and they decided not to. Well, yeah, He I had mean, it on his radio show. Right. I, no, I heard that. But it was the front page of the New York Post, which does – but the point is, I mean, why – and I know Trump, and I believe him – Trump um, said it was his social media team that put that photo out there independently. And it really were, uh, uh, and again, I didn't want to get into a whole Trump discussion. My discussion that I wanted to have was about cameras in the courtroom. But apparently you can't mention the word Trump without the bulls come charging at the Cape. Um, once again, it's another issue of Trump has nothing to do with anybody else around him. You know, um, why did Trump do this improperly? Oh, well, it was the people he appointed. It was uh, it was Jeff Sessions. Why did he do this improperly? Oh, it was the people that he appointed. It was Rex Tillerson. Why did Trump do this? Oh, it was Michael Bolton. It was Christopher Wray. There's always someone to blame. I mean, I just like the guy to be like Harry Truman. The buck stops with me. This happened while I was president. I'm responsible. Uh, otherwise, why are you asking for the job? Or um, this happened on my Twitter, or in this case is Truth Social, and I'm responsible. Now, he did delete that, but the point is, again, he makes all these unforced errors. He's, and again, I say this as a guy that voted for him twice. He's his own worst enemy, in my opinion. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll uh, do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. I had some interesting, um, interesting tax stories to uh to share with you but i'd say i thought i was going to get more stories in today but there were a lot of people who wanted to wanted to talk maybe tomorrow we'll uh we'll, we'll have some more more story time this is the other side of midnight 15 seconds of fame straight ahead the other side of midnight, midnight. it's the other side of midnight with frank morano Andy B, who kindly gifted us this theme song before he passed away. Now we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds on any subject you like at 800-848-9222 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. David! 
Yes, Donald Trump has claimed to be a billionaire for decades, yet he's asking his supporters to send in what little money they have. That's pretty low. Alan. Yes, uh, gag orders are determined by a judge, not the prosecution. But in this case, that judge is an Obama appointee. So you could probably put him on the prosecution. The, the judge is not an Obama appointee. The judge is a yes, state. he is. Okay, so you think the judge in the Trump Manhattan criminal case is an Obama appointee? That's correct. How, it's like wait, the wit Alan, Alan, retired. I, I, in case there's people that think this, I have to agree with why would Barack Obama get to appoint New York State Supreme Court justices? Well, I believe New York State is a blue state. Right. But this judge, the president, whoever it is, doesn't get to appoint New York State Supreme Court justices. Uh, it's just, uh, Russ in Queens. Hello. Yes. Thomas uh, Frank. What should Rosenberg drink? No, uh... uh Curtis Lee, what? What's he drinking? Sid Rosenberg Kool-Aid? Very funny. Uh, Eddie. In the immortal words of John Lennon, you know you can't hide when you're crippled inside. Russ. You compare a mass murderer like Harry Truman who drops two nukes on old people and children to Trump with a baseball bat? Stephanie Clifford and Michael Cohen were blackmailing Trump. Raji. Whenever you cite Gordon Gungo Chang and John Bolton as diehard warmongers, please include two bigger warmongers, Mark Levin and Rita, neither of whom volunteered to serve the station. Thank Mike. Morning, Frank. Uh, Carmine might be a little too young for wrestling violence. Start him on some wholesome animated violence. Maybe Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, or Foghorn Leghorn. I say, I say. Frank. You want to not politicize, and the Republicans politicize this Trump problem. In Canada, we're 100 to 1 against Trump. Leo. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Trump, you made it sound like Trump should be taking care of his internet. He delegates most of the stuff which he's doing. Well, then he should delegate it to more competent people. And finally, Pete. I'm glad that we got that in there. Okay, uh, that does it. That slams the lid on things for today. Back tomorrow with another four action-packed hours. Until then, Frank Moreno, good day.